Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC Paris. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast and all the episodes of the Dogger Pass Podcast are brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match deposit up or a match bonus up to $100 on that deposit. Uh, we got Cody Saftik on the line, traded in uh, pro- uh, Quad P, as people know him, or producer Pat. Since we're in Paris, to uh, producer Patrice, he'll be uh, popping in and out uh, over the course of the program. But uh, Cody, it was nice to have a little bit of a week off. Cody, I don't know if he wants to reveal it to the fan base here. He's a married man now. He got married on the weekend. So congratulations to you and the wife and, you know, the, the growing family. Um, exciting times for Cody Saftik. Yeah, exciting times. Of course, the last UFC we had was abysmal. It was Dog City. Unfortunately, not on the right side of the dogs that we needed. So just got slaughtered. And then the week off was nice. Week off, got married, uh, you know, kind of refreshed the batteries. You absolutely killed Dana White's Contender Series last night on Tuesday. So uh, just parlaying those good vibes and those good times going forward. Unfortunately, UFC doesn't give you the easiest offering. UFC Patty. Ha, 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 ha. And uh, it's not exactly the easiest card. I mean, there's a lot of 50-50 fights. A lot of these lines are pretty much where they need to be. But I still see about four or five underdogs that got a decent shot of coming through. And uh, good thing for you guys is, je suis moitié français, alors peut-être que je peux comprendre les fights un peu plus meilleurs que l'autre chum, les autres personnes qui regardent. Alors, ouais, on a 12 fights en total. Alors, peut-être on peut faire de l'argent et faire notre samedi vraiment bon merci. So yeah, Cody is is bilingual. That's something. Hey, c'est moi, Deportosa Patrice. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Ouais, ma longue cigarette. Je vais de pic de Paris. I understood everything he was saying. Yeah. Producer Patrice also speaks French better than me. We'll try to keep most of it to English, so people, particularly outside of Canada, can pick up on what we're throwing down. Let's get right into the action, though. We got Cyril Gaon taking on Tai Tuivasa. Minus 600 Gaon, plus 400 Tuivasa. Heavyweight fight. I mean, plus 400. Usually, I'm kind of drawn to that. You know me. I'm a, I'm a dog hunter through and through. And um, I can see the arguments. I'm not going to fault anybody if they take Tai Tuivasa by knockout. Like, that's... He, he, he hits super, super hard. He throws really, really good leg kicks, which I think could maybe potentially slow down some of the movement of Cyril Gaon. But, like, the more I kind of think about it, Cyril Gaon, he's only had, what, 11 11 professional MMA fights. He's a little bit older in his career, but, like, he hasn't really taken the damage. Um, Taitu Vasa doesn't provide much of a grappling, um, you know, advantage whatsoever. Like, he can't really take Gaon down. Gaon, if anybody is likely to maybe secure a takedown or two people said that against Derek Lewis though and just like he's just like no I can just pick this guy apart from distance and uh you know out volume out volume him until he falls apart cardio falls off a cliff Taito Vasa hasn't been in five round fights you know I love Bam Bam I would love to maybe get on to him by KO but like I really do think like gone is very very durable mobility is second to none um should be able to it's a big cage in paris is like a twenty thousand um uh, person arena 
Gon should be able to just kind of pick his spots from distance. I'm thinking Gon probably finishes him off in either round four or round five. Um, haven't looked at the props for that yet. I'm going to see how the week plays out because I really don't think those prices are going to get too far away from me. But yeah, Gon, the best I see out there, Gon round four is plus 1,200. Gon round five plus 1,700. I, I see a lot of people thinking that it may go, go to decision, but it's just like, I really don't know if Tai Tuivasa has 25-minute cardio. So I'm picking Gon. Won't get there from a betting perspective. Deep down in my soul, probably, uh, you know, cheering for Shui Vasa. Patrice. Yeah, uh, let's be producer Pat for a second. This card starts at noon Eastern on it Saturday does. as a heads up to people. Because I was like, Paris, it's going to be on real life. Get your like, picks no. in early. Yeah. Get your picks in early. Because, yeah, if you're on like, yeah, if you're on the Pacific, like this is starting at 9 a.m. Like you're waking up and watching fights which is awesome out here on the east coast of canada in the often forgotten uh, atlantic time zone we're uh 1 p.m start which is frankly it's just glorious i love when fights start early but anyway yeah gone is my pick hate minus 600 in literally any heavyweight fight but durability is on point um should be able to just pick uh tuivasa apart at range and avoid the big shots don't get into you know, a, a brawl with uh, with Bam Bam. So gone wins, but uh, yeah, minus six hundred, not touching it with a ten foot pole. What about you, Cody? Yeah, I mean, um, most of the same sentiments. I mean, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think he opened up at like minus three hundred, then it fell to minus four hundred. Now just money keeps pooling in on it that you kind of missed the the line on the money line. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I think I think everything you said. I think he avoids the big shots. He stays at the outside. He sh- he has proven to be way quicker, way more lateral than everybody else in the division. Way better footwork. And listen, he's not the most entertaining heavyweight going. I think people want to see the big knockouts. People want to see the big finishes. But he's super surgical. You know, he's methodical with his approach. He's got an excellent jab. A lot of the times it looks like he's playing with his food. He's got both of his hands right by his waist side, but he's basically heavyweight wonder boy. I mean, his ability to just dictate the action, get in and out is absolutely huge. And when you talk about, well, I mean, puncher's chance, they're heavyweights and Tai Tuivasa absolutely hits like a train. That is fair. But like, who's the biggest, th- who's the third biggest power puncher in the division? It's like, oh yeah, Zena Rosenstruck. Dude's got the death touch. It's like, yeah, yeah. And he just easily navigates around him, dances around him. Dude barely even comes close to him. It's like, well, who's the second biggest power puncher in the division? It's like, got to be D. Lewis, man. Derek, the Black Beast Lewis, has been slugging people out for a long time. He's a proven commodity. The guy's the man. Surely it's got to be him, right? Same thing in that fight. It's like Derek Lewis is actually decently fast for a heavyweight. He comes nowhere near Surreal Gone. So now he gets Francis Ngannou, who is the bona fide hardest hitter in the division. And uh, through the first two rounds, it's like Francis is largely getting stifled. He's getting frustrated. He can't come near him. He's missing on all of his big shots. And it's not the greatest look going. Now, going back to that fight, because, of course, he lost. And I think that's why he's back in the pecking order and this and that. But, I mean, listen, he's close to beating Francis Ngannou. He wins the first two rounds. Third round, very close. He's winning the exchanges standing. Unfortunately, does give up the two takedowns. So let's just say it's cautiously in Ghanu's round. Fourth round, and Ghanu gets some takedowns going. It's in Ghanu's round. Fifth round, Cyril Ghan takes down Francis Ngannou. He ends up on top of him in his guard with three minutes left and falls back on a goddamn leg lock. Why in the world, after having this guy on top of you for the last two rounds, would you have essentially pulled him back on top of you? No, could have sat in guard, could have won that fight, could have been the world heavyweight champ. Bad IQ moment. I mean, but in an otherwise different world, he is the champ. And I think it'd be a good learning experience for him. Don't be falling back on leg locks. Play it cautious. These are the things you need to shore up. He should be a better version of himself than he was before. And listen, the guy was already pretty good. So, yes, Ty's got power punching. He's got a puncher's chance. 
but the other guys weren't coming up near, and I think Ty's going to run into a lot of the same problems. You did mention Ty will have some success with leg kicks. That I'm going to agree with. Ty's implemented the leg kicks in a number of his fights. The Augusta Sakai fight, he absolutely tortures him from the outside. And training with Mark Hunt, sure to God, you know, leg kicks are a staple of his game. So I can see him trying to implement them to maybe slow down that movement of Surreal Gone. I just think that Gron's going to start countering him. He's going to use the jab. Every time that Ty Tuivasa goes to throw the kick, he'll have an answer for him, and that should play dividends down the road. So outside of trying to smother him up against the cage and having some leg kicks, I don't know where Ty has the vast majority of success. Taking him down, taking a playbook from Francis Ngannou would make sense. Ty Tuivasa has a 0% takedown accuracy. He's never he's th- he's shot three takedowns in the UFC, not gotten all of them, two of them in his debut, and one of them five years later against Augusta Sakai. So, like, yeah, nobody expects him to go out there and wrestle. But yeah, smothering him against the cage could at least slow down the movement. Kicking the leg could at least slow down the movement. Unfortunately, I just don't think it's enough. Where I think the best value for this fight currently, uh, due to the fact that Gon's just overwhelmingly big favorite at this point, I think the best value comes in that over two and a half at minus one thirty. If you look at Cyril Gon again, he is cerebral. He takes his time. He's not looking to go out there and rush. Even in the Derek Lewis fight, at the end of the second, he punches him in the face. Lewis looks at the ref and says, "I poke." Ref tells him, "Dude, that's a closed fist punch." And Gon at no point pounces on him. He just lets the last the last fourteen seconds tick by. He doesn't have much of a killer instinct. Mm-hmm. He'll put you away if you're toppling over and you're hurt. But he most definitely takes his time. The Rosenstruck fight is boring because he just took his time. Ty, meanwhile, is not this madman that everybody thinks he is. If you watch his fights, he's looking to set up his punches. The reason why he bet, beat Greg Hardy is Greg Hardy came rushing in hot. Tied to Ivas is the one that kept his eyes on him. So he's not like he's just going to go out there and slug for the fences as hard as he can. Go back and watch the Sakai fight. Same thing. It's a slow first round. He knocks him out in the second. The Derek Lewis fight, he has to overcome some adversity early, but he looks to slow Lewis down and then open up. Both guys are going to take their time in a five-rounder. So that being said, over two and a half, yeah, yeah. But then going back to what you said, does Ty got 25 minutes of cardio? Yeah, that I couldn't tell you. So I'm going to take the over two and a half. I'm taking Surreal Gone, and then my my gut tells me Surreal Gone probably like a late TKO stoppage in the fourth or the fifth. For people who like Tai Tuivasa, Tuivasa by KO is like plus 650. Like, I would be stunned by one to see him win by submission against Surreal Gone. Like, I don't even know if Tuivasa has any sort of submission game. Or two, him to win by decision in Paris seems pretty unlikely. So upgrading <laughs> your plus 400 to plus 650, it's like... It seems pretty knockout or bust for Tai Tuivasa. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in the Surreal Gone late props. Uh, we'll see as more books open up uh, what gets available. Uh, but yeah, like 12 to 1 and 17 to 1. Not exactly uh, terrible looks there, in my humble opinion. And it could be by, like, don't get too tricky with like by submission or by knockout. Because like, if Tai Tuivasa is just super, super gassed and Gone takes him down, like we've seen Gone. Uh, you know, get uh, a submission win in the past against Rafael Pessoa. Um, so he's obviously working on those skills. Moving on down, we got Robert Whitaker taking on Marvin Vittori, minus 215. Whitaker plus 185 for Mad Marv. Who you got here, buddy? Yeah, I want to bet Marvin Vittori. It looked like the plus money on him was just a little bit generous. And this guy's a big, thick bully, man. He's got a cement head on him. He acts the part, too. But, I mean, he can take damage, man. He can take one hell of a punch. He's always moving forward. His last fight with Paulo Costa, he put up ungodly striking numbers where he basically took all of Costa's best shots and kept with it. Now he's at 205 pounds. It's big for the division. He's thick. He's going to be able to back up Robert Whitaker. 
and all these things definitely present problems for sure. But, uh, but yeah, man, looking back at Robert Whitaker, we, you and I often talk about the fact that maybe he's a little bit shop worn. Like he's been in some brutal wars. He fought 10 rounds with a prime Yoel Romero, which definitely took something out of him. But yeah, low key, he's 31 years old. And like, if you get away from that narrative that he's completely shot, like his performances kind of speak for themselves. He does get hurt at certain points, but he's operating at a very high level. And here's what I took was the most interesting takeaway from the fights that I had been watching, right? Yoel is a counter puncher. He prefers you to lead the dance. He wants to explode with a big explosive, uh, you know, counter shot or something like that. So fighting him is a little bit difficult for Robert Whitaker because he's forced to lead the dance and as such takes a whole lot of damage. Uh, Israel Adesanya, of course, he's a counter puncher. Darren Till is a counter puncher. Jerry Cannonier is a counter puncher. Kelvin Gastelum is a go forward kind of guy. Kelvin Gastelum will try to push the pace on you. That might be the best version of Robert Whitaker we've ever seen. He just matadors him so clean. Everything he throws is two, three punch combinations, you know, exponated with a big kick at the end, right? The jab is on point. Uh, his right hand's on point. Does he have to take a little bit of damage in dealing with Kelvin Gaslam coming hard on him for 25 full minutes? Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, he just looks really clean. And then I think that's the difference between Robert Whitaker and a vast majority of the division. You know, he is a former champion. He is actually world class. Even the second fight with Israel Adesanya, he gave him a go. He gave him a very competitive go. The guy's able to make mid-round adjustments. That's probably his best thing. Because, yes, in the till fight, he gets dropped in the first round like a stiff elbow and then comes back in the first round and then wins two, three, four, you know, just basically takes over after that, makes the adjustments. It's clean work. Jared Cannonier fight, he got hurt at the end of the third round. But until then, clean work. Intercepted everything Cannonier had, had. Dropped him with a head kick early in the third round. Like, clean performance. I go back to that Gaslam fight. Is when a guy comes at him, that's where he's at his best. Because instead of fighting counterpunchers, he becomes the counterpuncher. And he is an excellent counterpuncher. He's got volume on his side. Everything he throws is clean. He's got very laser-like precision. And I think he's just going to be able to beat Vittori to the target. Vittori, meanwhile, is a little more inconsistent. He had one hell of a crazy fight with Paulo Costa. But why that is? Paulo Costa stands right in front of you and throws down. So putting up high numbers against him isn't all that impressive because he's a very hittable target. Well, how did he do versus Israel Adesanya, a guy that's a talented counterpuncher? He almost got nothing going. Like his wrestling was okay. And I would expect Whitaker's wrestling to be as good, uh, well, better than Israel Adesanya's. I mean, as good as Vittori's. So I don't think wrestling Vittori or uh, Robert Whitaker down for 15 minutes is going to be the key. I think it's probably going to be a striking battle. And if so, he's going to be coming forward. He's going to get intercepted. Volume's going to be Whitaker's side. Everything he throws is a lot cleaner. Vittori's talented, no doubt. But he's more of that junkyard dog. He's going to come forward. He's going to brawl. And against a guy like Izzy, he froze up because it's like there's just too much going on, too much movement, too many angles. Can't quite figure it out. And then last but not least is that Whitaker generally gets booked for the five-round fights. I mean, he's a former champion and he's a headlining guy. He's fought one three-round fight in the last, like, number of years. And again, I think three-round fights are probably better suited to him because, like, the longer his fights go, he starts to take damage. And the damage is what's slowing him down, and then he gets into a dogfight. But he can fight a clean three rounds against Vittori before Vittori ever really gets going, at least win two of the three. And then last but not least, I always keep saying that, but to wrap it up, Whitaker's chin may be a little bit suspect. He does get wobbled, certainly, in a lot of his fights. But Martin Vittori is not a power puncher. He shows, like, one knockout win. In, a long, in, in the last five years, he shows one knockdown in the UFC, and he's got like 13 fights for them. So yeah, he's not the guy to just flash KO Whitaker, I don't think. Therefore, if we're going to get a good 15-minute striking battle, I'd take uh, I'd take Robbie Whitaker. Uh, the over-under set 280, I think, to the over. And yeah, I think this thing's going to decision. So if you want to try to improve that 210 price tag on Robbie Whitaker, almost certainly you would take him by decision. That's all fair. 
that's all fair. I actually am kind of leaning more towards the Vittori side here. I know that, you know, Robert Whitaker's put in some time with the Australian national team or something, like training for – he wanted to go to the Olympics, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just never been all that impressed by what, what I've seen from his wrestling. Marv, like, has – if his game plan is to stick to you – you know, like glue and get takedown after takedown after takedown. We have seen that happen for him. I mean, Kevin Holland is very easy to take down. Don't get me wrong. And now he's down at 170 pounds. We took him down 11 times. Um, uh, I think his volume is pretty good. Mind your P's and Q's. I just, for me, it's more of like, I think the line is, you know, this fight is closer than the minus 215 plus 185. I haven't bet it. Um, there are some other dog shots I will be taking on this card. I'm going to see how weigh-ins play out for these two guys, but um, I'm going to lean ever so slightly to the dog Marvin Vittori to pull off the upset here. Um, yeah, I just think it's a maybe a bit of a passing of the torch. My, my concern with Whitaker is, yeah, he has been hurt a whole bunch of times. He gets clipped by shots that like don't seem like full power, and it, they don't put him out. But like we've seen him, you know, stank lagged a whole bunch of times. The guy has been through the meat grinder. Uh, he's only 31 years old. I hear, I see him talking about moving up to 205 pounds, which is like, man, you were a former welterweight. Like 205 is a different beast up there. I do not like the thought of that for Robert Whitaker whatsoever. Maybe he's thinking that because he just doesn't know if he's ever going to get a title shot again with Izzy. You know, you know how how fighters posture for these types of things, but uh, yeah, I think Marvin Vittori obviously is only three years younger, but it's like in terms of like Robert Whitaker's thirty-one with city miles, if that makes any sense. Like a guy has you know, he's fought Ro Yoel Romero twice. He's he's fought Israel Adesanya twice. Like the guy has been a consummate professional, a, a real you know a, a top guy in this division for a long time. But Marv's on the way up. Uh yeah, Marv plus one eighty five. I think that's the the better side here. I'm gonna pick the underdog in this spot, but you know, stand stand by for further uh, confirmation on whether I actually get to it from a betting perspective. Moving on down, we got Alessio DiCirico taking on Roman Kopalov. Minus one twenty, DiCirico plus one hundred for Kopalov. Who you got here, Cody? Yeah, I mean, really, it's a total pass type fight. I mean, I don't know what to expect out of either guys. On one hand, you got Alicia DiCirico, who all of his fights, he shows a little bit of something and then shows a whole lot of bad as well. But again, it's well, what fight do you go back and watch? You watch the Julian Marquez fight. He gets four takedowns against him. His cardio looks okay, but his striking is no good, particularly if you come forward on him and he has to back up. He's got nothing for him. Loses to Holland. Makman Muradov's cardio looked good. Maybe you could take away that from the third round. The Zach Cummings fight, he loses the first round. He wins the second round. He is winning the third round. And then, no, sorry, he wins the first, loses the second, winning the third. And there's like one second left in the fight, and he gets kicked in the head by Zach Cummings. And he's basically out. But that right there ruined the entire fight for him. Like, guy just can't catch a break. He's very mediocre in every area of the game. His wrestling, although he's tried to make a lot of improvements to him, it's not it's not great by any stretch. Once he does get the fights to the ground, he doesn't have generally a whole lot of success. His striking, it's kind of tit for tat, but he doesn't really have these big moves. Like, he's on his way out. 100% he's about to get cut from the promotion. They match him up with Joaquin Buckley, and quite literally out of nowhere, he just kicks him lopsided the head and KOs him stiff. So... That saves his job, and then his very next fight against Abdul Razak al-Hassan in 17 seconds, he himself gets kicked in the face. 
So on one hand, you got a guy that hasn't fought in like over a year. You got a guy that really realistically has about two and a half minutes of cage time since the last two years, two plus years. He's got about three minutes of cage time. He's 32 years old now. Surely he's making some improvements. I think the guy can grapple to an extent. I think he can strike you to, to an extent. I think his cardio is okay to an extent, but he's just super middling in every aspect of the game. And his chin might be faltering a little bit because he got basically knocked out by Zach Cummings, maybe saved by the bell. And then furthermore, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, basically the same head kick, drops him out all the way. That's the first time he's been knocked out in his career. Does he have durability issues? Does he have injury issues? If you look through his topology, he's pulled out of a number of fights. It's like, what could you realistically expect from this guy? Roman Kopilov, meanwhile, he was pretty good on the Russian regional scene, you know, a former uh, Fight Nights champion. Uh, but since he's come to the UFC, it's like he's super one-dimensional. All he is is boxing. He's got fast hands, throws hands in combinations, but hardly ever kicks. He stands super up, like upright. Uh, doesn't have great cardio. His debut against Carl Roberson, I mean, he's giving an okay account of himself, but his volume's not there. The power is not there. And then in the third round, Roberson just easily takes him down and chokes him out with a rear naked choke. Bad look. Bad mm -hmm. look. Takes two years off, comes back against Albert Durayev. Had Albert Durayev just mauled him with his wrestling, I would have given him the pass. The thing is, Durayev hardly took him down in that fight, maybe once. But for the most part, just backed him up and battered him. Like, that's a bad look, man. Mm -hmm. You are a one-dimensional boxer with lackluster takedown defense, and now you're getting backed up and battered around by Durayev. I, I mean, he maybe looked better in that fight than against Carl Roberson, but again, it's a bad look. So low-key, I think DiCirico is the guy that actually has more tools in his belt. He could take the fight to the ground, and I don't think Kabbalah's takedown defense is all that good. And yeah, I, I think DiCirico has a de decent little wrestling chop to his game. Um, as far as the striking goes, I would say Kabbalah's probably got the bigger power, the tighter hands, the better combinations, but DiCirico will probably just spam kicks from the outside, keep volume a little bit higher, keep it somewhat close, and then hopefully mix in a couple takedowns into the mix. So you don't want a whole lot of exposure to this fight because it could easily go either way. But I would be leaning towards the Italian here, Alessio DiCirico. Yeah, I pretty much echo the pretty much all the same sentiments as you on this fight. Not a fight that I am confident whatsoever in, but I think Alessio DiCirico should be able to mix in some wrestling. Um, he's such a weird guy because, yeah, he got taken out. He, sorry, he took out, um, you know, he won by the same exact head kick against uh, Joaquin Buckley that he basically ate against Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. And then before that, he was just a decision machine, um, you know, for the, the previous, you know, the losing losing records. It's like, I don't really know what to expect from this guy at, at all. Um, but I'm going to lean towards him ever so slightly. If you want to, if you want to get on the Dicharico train, it seems like there's a lot of Kopalov money, at least like the market keeps uh, closing, closing, closing. It's like pretty much a pick em at, uh, at most books out there right now. So you may get plus money on Alessio Dicharico. The closer we get to fight night, um, I'll pick Dicharico for the purposes of the show as well. But, uh, my money, will not be following that pick. Very unlikely that it'll be following that pick. All right, moving on down, we got Nazrat Hakparast taking on John the Bull McDessie. Minus 240, Hakparast, plus 205, McDessie. Cody, your thoughts? Okay, so you are potentially going to sniff out that co-main event as our potential apple pie shirt, something that will hurt us. And it's good to know. Good to know where like where the faith is in these two-to-one favorites. This is the second one that I would be worried about for potential apple pie shit. Or Nazareth Hackross is just too big of a favorite here. He's too big of a favorite against anybody in the division. The guy always has a massive money line attached to him. 
and he rarely delivers the goods for the most part. The biggest thing here is that it's the narrative. So you got Nazrat Hakros, a German fight. Well, I think he's an Afghanistan fighter, uh, lived in Germany and then became a German fighter, then moved to Canada and spent a lot of time at TriStar. Not a Canadian fighter, though, but spent a lot of time at TriStar with John McDessie. Mm -hmm. John McDessie, meanwhile, he spent his entire career at TriStar. He spent his entire amateur career at TriStar. He's through and through a Faraz Ahabi guy. Unfortunately, his career starts to tail off a little bit. And Mickey Gall had hurt him in a training injury. And apparently, like, Faraz took Mickey Gall's side. So he's just like, screw this place. But he's a welterweight. I'm a 45er. <laughs> Sorry, he should be a 45er. Dude fights at 55 for whatever reason. But uh, he bailed and he went to Duke Rufus's camp after that. Now he's been battling injuries. He's battling, you know, inactivity. The guy's still super skilled. But it's like Nazareth's the one that's been talking shit this whole time. And I'm sure Faraz and them think that they can beat John McDessie, and I'm sure that Froz is the inside scoop, but he doesn't. He quite frankly does not. So I think all that narrative is built into here. And they're saying, oh, well, he's accusing uh, John McDessie of dodging him. Oh, he's dodging me. Dog, you guys were booked to fight. You pulled out 10 days before the fight. He had to fight Jesus Pinedo for no reason, right? Weird one. Uh, all the same, you guys were booked to fight. You're the one that pulled out. All John McDessie did was say, I'd rather fight Jim Miller or Joe Lozon. What's wrong with that? I'd rather fight a guy with a name in the division the Nazareth Hawk cross on a two fight losing streak who quite frankly, nobody gives a shit about. And so I don't blame John McDessie. I don't take any of the, he's avoiding them and they know all of his secrets. They know all of his tricks. I don't take anything of that into consideration. What I do take into consideration is that John McDessie's pretty much in always close fights. He's a stand-up guy. If you're not going to take him down and it's going to be a strictly stand-up battle, it's probably going to be relatively close. You could easily see this fight going 15 minutes. And then for that reason, could be a fight that's just a lot greasier than it needs mm -hmm. to be. When you look at Nazareth Hakros, this guy was everybody's baby, right? He beats Mark Diacasey, huge win. He beat Tebow Gowdy as a 10 to 1 favorite. 10 to 1 favorite. Beats Joaquin Silva, huge favorite. Drew Dober, I believe he's a 3 to 1 favorite over Drew Dober. Drew Dober melts this guy cold, right? Look at the results since then, right? First round knockout loss to Drew Dober. Since then, Alex Munoz. Alex Munoz, not a striker, can't really strike for the most part. Nazareth put up some numbers in that fight, but he looked a little bit unconfident. Rafa Garcia fight. Rafa Garcia made his debut on short notice and pretty much gave Nazareth Hackcross one hell of a go, if we're being perfectly honest with each other. It was considered a lower level fight for him, but all the same, he struggled in a lot of spots against him. Dan Hooker. Dan Hooker walked forward and beat the shit out of him. He beat him in every exchange. He took him down at will. He absolutely big brothered this guy and showed Nazareth's not an elite prospect anymore. And then the Bobby Green fight. Bobby Green stood right in front of him all night and beat the crap out of him. Where was his output in the Bobby Green fight? Mm -hmm. He was missing on all of his punches. He's waiting on all of his punches. He did not look himself. He has not looked himself since he's been knocked out by Drew Dober. And so there's a thing with him. I don't think he's some prospect anymore. He's got no variations to his game. He'll box with you. He'll stand in the pocket. He'll try to throw some hands. He's fought in middling guys. He's fought in good guys. It's like he, he just kind of goes through the motions oftentimes. And against John McDessie, I mean, the guy's a... Uh, you know, former Taekwondo guy, excellent footwork in and out. He touched, he, you know, he, he fires off from good angles. Backing him up is definitely the key to beating him, like making him fought, fight off his back foot the way that Francisco Trinaldo did maybe two fights back. is like, be the bully, be the aggressor. But he's still got lots to offer. And you saw that in his last fight against Ignacio Bahamondes, who's on an absolute streak right now. But John McDessie is capable of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with you, landing good shots, keeping it competitive. And with Nazareth, he seems a little bit lost. So... I'm not saying that he can't win the fight. I'm not saying this is easy money, John McDessie. I just think this thing going to end up being way closer than a Nazareth, than a Nazareth minus 240, minus 250 pick. 
And for that reason, like, if I do play Nazrat, it's going to be, like, way lower. So he seems like he's one of your trustworthy favorites this week by the number, but I got a bad feeling about him. I think a lot of people are writing off John McDessey, who at 37 seems old, seems fragile, yeah. seems like he doesn't want to be there, but he's healthy for the first time in a long time. And uh, if you've been checking anything he's been saying online, like, I did. He, he's, like, really motivated to punch Nazrat Hawkcross in the face. So. Yep. I think in the war of mind games, he's going to end up winning. Nazrat's going to come in emotional, be like, oh, I can beat this guy because I beat him in a striking match in the gym one time. Mm-hmm. And John McDessey's going to dance around and make him pay. So kind of what I'm banking on. But I don't know that I got the cojones to just outright pick 37-year-old McDessey on like a 16-month layoff. Well, I do. I, uh, I was waiting for uh, confirmation from Cody, see if you would echo the same sentiments as me. Um, so I missed the plus 205. There was a plus 200 that was still available that I took during your long diatribe there. Um, I was fully intending on betting John McDessey. Now, maybe I'm a little bit biased because uh, way back in the day, UFC 129 in Toronto, (laughs) I was working at Mark's Work Warehouse at the Eaton Center. John the Bull McDessey came in to that Mark's Work Warehouse and needed like training shoes for the week. Maybe he left them on his flight. Maybe he left them, you know, didn't pack them in his bag. I don't know. So I feel like partially responsible for the spinning back uh, fist knockout that he landed that night. He would have got a performance bonus if Lyoto Machida didn't have, you know, one of the most epic, like, you know, front kick knocks out, knockouts you'll ever see. Um, no, but yeah, yeah, long story short, it's like Nazar Hakpras, the, the volume just rarely ever is there. Um, I think this probably ends up being a stand-up contest between the two of them. A lot of people counted John McDessey out against Ignacio Bahamondes because Bahamondes was massive, like a big, huge frame. Kid's really, really talented. We've seen in his most recent uh, performances as well. And it was by no means was it like, you know, a runaway. It was a very, very, very close fight, but McDessey was a very large underdog in that spot. I'm going back to the well. McDessey, plus 200. Um, him by decision is like plus 300. That's how I think he probably wins. I just want to be holding the plus 200 ticket in a close stand-up striking match that goes the distance. Uh, I want to be holding the plus 200 ticket. I don't want to be holding the minus 240. So that's my general mentality about this fight. Also, on prize picks, uh, fantasy score for Nazrak Hakparaz. We were talking about low volume. Under or less than uh, 85.5 fantasy points. Um, I think that's pretty good. I think this is going to go to the decision. I think, you know, Nazrat's not going to get too many knockdowns or takedowns. So it's really, really hard to accrue 85.5 in a stand-up decision unless you're throwing tons of volume. And as we kind of talked about, he doesn't throw all that much volume. You know, 70 significant strikes over the course of three rounds, no knockdowns, no takedowns. You're just not going to get to 85.5 points. So... I like the hack per ass under uh, 85.5 on the fantasy score line. Significant strikes at 68.5 is a little bit more like, yeah, you could get there in a win or loss. Like, I'm not so sure. Patrice. Yeah, I was looking at that one, too, when you were going over it. So just for people who don't know, on prizepicks.com, code DOP, by the way, to get your match deposit of up to 100 bucks. Links down in the description if you just want to do that. Uh, decision wins only 20 points. And the significant strike is only 0.6 points. Exactly. So he'd have to pile up what? 100 significant strikes mm-hmm. and the decision win, and he would still need to find 
five point five or exactly. six, six more points. That's my Jesse. So he needed to throw a takedown in there with his a hundred significant. It's not strikes. impossible, but no, it's but like, it just. But I think your reasoning is like if it goes to decision, yeah. Even if he wins and lays a beatdown on him, it still seems like he comes in under. Yeah, it's like even if he gets like a third round finish, there's no like, and he has like really really low uh, striking. Well, that's numbers. that's fifty points, third round win. Yeah, I know, but it's like his volume's very, very low. Like, what if he has like thirty significant strikes and he gets a third round finish or something like that? Like, he doesn't necessarily even get there in that situation. So, sounds like we're kind of on the same page. We'll see where Cody lands um, when we get to Saturday morning. But uh, John the Bull McDessie for me—that's my first click of the week. Uh, plus two hundred. Moving on down, we got William Gomez taking on Yarno Aaron's. William Gomez is a minus 225 favorite. Aaron's can be had for plus 190. You got any thoughts on this one, buddy? Yeah, so it's a late addition. This Gomez kid is fast. Look, I mean fast. His feet are fast. His hands are fast. Unfortunately, he's still really green, man. 25 years old, makes a ton of mistakes. And I can see why there's a lot of hype on him because it looks like he's going to be a pretty good prospect. But he's still got some trials and tribulations to go through. And you look at his record, for the most part, he's been fighting some lower-level guys. He does show a win over Tobias uh, Harilla on Cage Warriors. That fight there, he looked good. He's moving laterally. Okay, for the most part, this guy's going to have a speed advantage over guys. His striking's pretty fast. He's got big explosive power. He prefers to grapple, but you can see there's something there. It's the last two. This Arip Yokopov fight, he does win the first fight in the first round, but he backs straight to the cage, and then he just unloads with power shots, right? He's not moving side to side. He's looking very like uh frenetic right he's like trying to trying to just explode into big combinations doesn't set anything up then this last fight against jose marcos he just tries to grind on him, right same thing he backs himself up straight up to the cage swings wild ass bombs that he's not trying to set up and then grabs a hold of this dude and peels him to the ground eventually beats him on the ground here's your problem jose marcos uh is a, a former 125 pound fighter dude fought adriano marais Dude was on The Ultimate Fighter back in like 2013. He's not a big guy in the slightest bit. Mm -hmm. And it took him three full rounds to eventually get this guy to the ground. He just wore on him for the first two rounds and without being able to complete takedowns. Now, two fights ago, you're a striker. Three fights ago, you're a striker. This fight, his striking looked off. Backs himself up, swings wild-ass bombs, and then tries to just grab a hold of the guy and rip him to the ground. So I think he's fast. I think he's got a lot of potential, but... He's probably starting to peak off where he's probably one of the better guys in his gym. And he's going to have to get some training parties. He's going to have to fight some wrestlers. He's going to have to like go and change up the next level. So I don't know. The UFC signed him on relatively short notice. He's fought three months ago yeah. for Aries. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think he's UFC ready. Yeah, it's probably like a, well, MMA factory Paris. He trains with Gon. Gon's probably like, hey, this kid's, you know, got some potential. Get him on this card, but don't book him against someone that's like, very um you know experienced it's like you got kind of go through uh Aaron's record and there's really nothing to be overly excited about hasn't really taken on any sort of high level of competition to be perfectly honest doesn't seem to have like crazy finishing ability getting subbed two years ago by relative unknowns this is a fight that like I'm going to do my due diligence by watching it. Haven't dug into tape yet. Not sure how deep I'm going to get into it anyway. They're both young. They're both unproven. Should be a fun fight, but uh, I'll pick Gomez for the purpose of the show. 
not gonna well, be well yeah here. yeah yeah listen i i I'd, I'd be taking the dog shot on yano oh, aaron's yeah. this fight didn't get added because this kid was some super prospect out of the same gym i'll tell you why it got added it got added because ricardo ramos versus danny henry fell apart cendric dubay was told he couldn't fight so that got scrapped Christos Giagos got injured. Taylor Lapolis got injured. Manuel Firo, Jessica Andrade got scrapped in favor of Chukagian Firo, which then got scrapped. Uh, Macklin Muradov got hurt. Ali Perez got hurt. Zara Farron got hurt. They needed people, especially people from France. Mm-hmm. I'll have you know, because we're going to talk about it when we get there, but Franz Zayam was cut from the promotion. Yep. They cut him. And then they were like, oh shit, we're going to France. We need French guys. And they resigned him. Come on. So when the when the cards start getting hit and a lot of the French fighters start falling out, they were like, yo, let's just throw somebody local from France. That's how William Gomez got the spot. Not because he's ready. Not That's because fair. they wanted it. In fact, Yero Aarons fought three he was weeks a, ago. He, he was fight a, three weeks ago? He fought, he fought less than four weeks ago. He's a warm body that they didn't have to pay for a flight. Yeah, so and I, and then and then I'm thinking the same thing. Okay, well he's the French guy and he's local and he's out of Fight Factory Paris and I, I start watching his tape study first and I was like, yeah, man, he's really fast and like you could see there's something to his game. But then I looked at Yaro Aaron's and it's like super misleading. So yeah, he's a Dutch fighter, so he's supposed to have no ground game. But like he spent some time with Alistair Overeem and crew. Like he he's he's been up the ranks and he's learned a hell of a lot. When you watch him fight, dude, he's menacing. He throws caution to the wind, huge, very fast, very athletic. Knees right up the middle. His striking is good. Then you look at his last four fights, right? This Ali Kabdula fight. So he signs with a major MMA, uh, like a management firm. And they're like, yo, UFC is interested. So we need to take you to UAE Warriors because UFC watches UAE Warriors, which is fact. And that fight with Ali Kabdula, he should have won, man. He dropped him twice. He looked good, man. Knees up the middle, like cardio looked on point, solid. Then they bring him over to fight Max Koga. Max Koga is the local hero, right? folds him with an uppercut a minute in like savage savage uppercut kids got power this mert i can't even pronounce his last name it's actually a rematch and it's a hell of a good fight man he gets taken down in the first round he gets caught in a twister fights his way out second round he starts bringing up the pace wins exchanges comes down to the third round third round super close he ends up on top he ends up taking the back at the end of the third you can score it either way but you can tell for a 26 year old dutch fighter who has kickboxing his ground game is definitely coming around. So they, they match him up against this Alicia Abdulayev. Uh, he's got a ballooned up record, but the guys seem physically strong. And yeah, he just dominated him with his grappling. He can strike. He can grapple. He's got 15-minute cardio. He just fought a month ago, which could be bad because he fought 15 minutes, right? So I'm sure he got knocked up a few times there and, you know, has a couple cuts and bruises. But for the most part, he's in shape. He's in shape and he's ready to go. And it's just another fight where I think the line's too far off. And uh, if you look at contender series, because you, you crush contender series and you've been well, doing quite well, but I, it's something, it's something I can't like take any 14... credit for any of that, Cody. That's I'm just playing a certain of system. The FTG. I know you're fading, you're fading, you're fading the Greek. But what I'm saying that's, is that I it. think it's like 15, 15 and 12 favorites to underdogs, 15 favorites, 12 underdogs. It's been unheard really of. good for unheard like the last of. like two weeks. Yeah. It's unheard of with these dog hits because it's like it's a it's a much lower level. And then even the last UFC, which was a pay-per-view, which was high level stuff, you're just seeing a tremendous amount of dogs coming through. So this is you the same what? thing. You've got a lower level fight where it came together on a month's notice. And the one guy's got a long ways to go, man. He's super green still. Uh, there's it's problematic it's problematic and it just screams underdog's got a shot here so i will take the dog shot on narrow air you know i'm changing my pick when cody tells you to pick a dog i'm (laughs) picking i'm I'm tailing cody on this i don't know if i'm gonna bet it but uh 
for the purposes you might want to of the show. It. But don't bet the big favorite is what I'm saying. I'm not betting the big favorite. I don't know if I'm going to bet the fight whatsoever. I am changing my pick on Cody's advice to uh, to the Dutch Yarno Aaron's Pat. Question for both of you on this one. <clears throat> is the reason that so many dogs are hitting because they run shows, I mean, they're running this Dana White Dancing with the Stars every single week now, it seems like, and they have either a fight night or a pay-per-view, and then Bellator is running, and then PFL's running, and Cage Warriors is running, that there's just not that many good fighters. Yeah. So, I mean, Dana think White of the can... people that are listed as favorites, like 225 minus 300, they should realistically be like, Coin flip situations. Yeah, probably. And no one really knows how to count like, them because everything's so watered down. Like last night's, like the the women's fight was like minus three hundred plus two forty. It's just like I don't know. They were kind of on the same level. I don't know. Basically, what ends up happening is like you know a lot of people you know they're beating the line movement a bunch, a bunch of people who have some influence in it, and not that many people. You know, a lot of people were like giving me do daps and stuff for like my bets last night. It's just like guys, I. You know, people on the know knew, like, the little smiley picture that I had next to it. Um, yeah, of course, of course. But uh, the other people are just like, why didn't you post these in advance? It's just like, I literally can't post them in advance because they say it on the show and you have to, like, act really quickly. Um, but, yeah, it's just like there's so much, so little interest. It's such a very niche community. That it's like if a few of these people who do, you know, pre-Dana pre White Contender Series shows – Tout it like these numbers move real, real hard. I, I, kind of I don't think, think anybody knows. It's such low level that it's, yeah, as you were saying, it's like 50 50. Well, flex. well, it just kind of comes down to the same thing in the NFL where there's like at any one time 15 guys that can legitimately play quarterback in the NFL. Yep. And then you have like a carousel of the other 17 starters, but they could be the 17 backups yep. as well going through that. There's only so much top end talent. And now they have all of these shows and all of these promotions that you're just getting people on these cards that you would never have seen 15 years ago. There's just so much, and it's good for MMA in general. I mean, you're, you're experiencing the exact same thing in golf right now. And you know, golf people are losing their mind. UFC people are like, we've already had all of the best fighters split up for a long time now. Like we're just, there wasn't enough money in one promotion to really satisfy what the fighters were worth. Um, yeah, we're seeing that a whole bunch is that, you know, there's a massive talent drain towards Bellator, PFL. Uh, you see a lot of good fighters over at KSW and Poland has a good organization. One at one championship out of uh, Singapore. They have like Demetrius Johnson. Like they have they have some good guys as well. well. Obviously, I think like the top three, top four in any sort of division uh, the best fighters in the world are typically in the UFC, but it's like you get outside of that top five or you get into like, you know, ranked number 10 to 15. It's like you definitely have other people like Gegard Mousasi is still a top, a top 10 middleweight. He just doesn't fight in the UFC anymore. Well, Cody, you've been matchmaking now and putting these cards together. I mean, since we lived together and that's been geez, a decade at this point. Like, what's the amateur talent that you can book for these cards or even the professional talent that you can book for these cards today versus potentially what the quality would have been 10 years ago? Yeah, the quality is way better today because people know what they're doing. Like, if you watch back classic UFC fights where it's like, oh, dude, Shogun's a great striker. It's like, no, he's, he's not. He's not. Dan Henderson just cocks up on the same right hand over and over. Like, none of this shit would work nowadays. It's just way more advanced. So amateurs and pros used to see 10 years ago 
it, it's vastly different. These guys are much better. When you watch the most basic fight on UFC card and people complain, oh, they're low level, except for like the odd women's MMA fight. And that's, I don't mean to be disrespectful. For the most part, it's like, yeah, these, these fighters are all talented. They're all good. I don't think the problem is that the product's watered down and that there's crappy fighters, which is the reason all these underdogs hit and all these crazy things happen. Like, I honestly believe it just comes down to the fact that they don't have no money and they need to fight. And as a result, one-on-one -on -one competition where one guy's hurt but needs the money, you're, we're, we're running into a lot of problems. That That's my biggest, like, takeaway over, like, the last couple months. You look at an NFL game, okay? You don't simply say the Tennessee Titans are better than the Pittsburgh Steelers because they have a better quarterback. You have to look at everything. You have to look at, oh, they have a better defense and they have a better uh, running back and they've got better wide receivers. And so even if... Marcus Mariotto, whoever the hell's their quarterback, injures himself, and the backup has to come in. There were still other variables in play. One guy has a bad day. If the offensive tackle breaks his foot and he's out, or if he doesn't show up to the game, he's a game-time decision, he's sick. If their number one wide receiver does not start, there's other ways to win, okay? Now, the other thing with these professional athletes, boxers, they'll fight when they're ready because there's big money on the line. You know, football players, if they've got turf toe, they'll just sit it out because there's big money on the line. These guys aren't making nothing, okay? And they're making $10,000 to show up, $10,000 to win. That's your basic. UFC general will give you a 12 and 12. $12,000 to show up, $12,000 to win. Let's say you go out there and you win that fight. You made $24,000, okay? You get your Venom, $3,000, it's twenty-seven, And you broke your foot in the process and need to be on the sidelines for eight months, okay? So now you've made $27,000, which got taxed pretty heavily. And now you're on the sidelines for eight months, making $0. You're broke. You're driving uh, Uber. You're driving Lyft. You're doing whatever it takes to get by. Now the UFC books you for a return fight, and you're getting ready, and you're getting ready, and you sprain your ankle. Well, what do you do? Do you pull out of the fight? No, because you're broke. Because you're broke, and you understand if you pull out of the fight, the UFC is going to be like, oh, you pulled out of the fight. We just signed 15 guys off Contender Series in the last three weeks. Somebody wants your roster spot, buddy. Don't worry about it. We'll book you again in another eight months from now. No, you're forced to fight. And what happens is you only figure this shit afterwards. It's like these guys are going in with torn labrums and like you know, a ripped meniscus. Even Lupita Godina says afterwards, the guy was riddled with injuries. And so why did you take the fight? She took that fight on really short notice favorite. on top of that. Like that was really yeah, weird. Yeah, why? but why? Took but it on why? like a week You're and a half notice or two weeks notice. Like it just in, in Angela Hill's hometown. Like it was just like, what? Who is your manager? And you should probably fire them. Yeah, and so and so, just random theory here. We'll talk about this uh, Abu Supi and Magomedov. He's two fights down, okay? Just, yep. uh, as a random example, this guy is probably broke, okay? He fought in the PFL tournament. He's going to go for a million dollars. He got knocked out by Lewis Taylor. Damn. Million-dollar dream evaporated. Now you're in your 30s. Now he's had two fights in the last four years. The UFC signs him. He pulls out of a Gerald Mirashart fight. They try to rebook him against... Alish Kabab Kiziev, he pulls out of that fight too. At this point, if he pulls out of another fight, goodbye. You pulled out of three fights in the UFC before you ever even made your debut. Okay? Done. Over. So he's going to take the fight that was offered to him. And yeah, kudos to him. He's showing up to this one. But if this guy had an injury, if this guy was sick, if this guy had a terrible training camp, he'd still show up to the fight. And you don't know that. And he got lucky in this spot, too, because he was supposed to take on Mahmoud Miradov, and then he gets Dustin Stolfus. He's not particularly good, for the record. But, he's um, not particularly good, but I think it's a he's a better fighter, I think, than and then, uh, and then, well, Hold on, here's hold the on, craziest Cody. part. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Just, just to amend what I said earlier, because you kind of, obviously, you know this far better than I do. Is it that the bottom rung now 
the, the entry point to getting in, you have to be so much better, but there are far more, now that MMA is just far more popular than it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it might be, and more people are doing it. You see all these like college athletes who were football players or whatever. They're not going to make the NFL. Hey, I'll train for MMA. And it just turns out they're really good athletes that they can be taught this kind of thing. That at the very bottom level, like your curtain jerkers for you know, any of these promotions, just that baseline level is so much better that the yeah. talent gap is just a lot closer than it used to be, and it's not as separated except for at the very top end. Yeah, th there's there's the other thing. It used yeah. to be like this guy's had 15 fights and that guy's making his debut. There's zero chance the guy making his debut is going to win. But now it's like this guy's got 15 fights on the Kentucky regional scene against nobody. And that guy's a former D1 football player who's training at Sanford MMA. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, it's like the guy that's 0-0 can go out there and wreck a 15-fight veteran. So the gap has definitely been bridged there for sure. But I, I just think so many people are coming in with injuries. And even if you knew who was injured, it would make a lick of difference. Because Paul hit this 3-1 to one underdog girl last night who went in with some type of knee, like, knee tear. I don't know. She sat down in the second round because her knee was blown out. Somehow still won the third. And then goes on record afterwards to be like, I was definitely hurt coming into this fight, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity. Ain't that some shit? It's the opportunity. So if they were getting paid, you know, two fifty, three hundred thousand dollars a fight, it would be like, yeah, I'm gonna fight once a year when I'm fully healthy and ready to go, and I have a great training camp, and that would be your schedule. But because the vast majority of them are fighting for minimum wage, they need to win three fights a year to make sixty thousand dollars. Obviously, that's not minimum wage, but you'd have to win three fights a year, which is pretty difficult task. The, the I, I just think they're showing up compromised, and we're betting on them compromised, and we just, you know, I yeah, don't know. You need them to series. be at a hundred percent, and they're just they're, they never are. So it's a it's a crapshoot, really. Yeah. Is. Victoria Dudakova is just built different. Clearly, she's just you know it's Russian man. I didn't I didn't realize she had the tough. Russian mentality until she walked through. <laughs> like a I mean, blown, yeah, I don't know. I, don't I know felt really good after round one in that spot, and then round two, I'm just like, oh god, this, you know. We're, we're letting this one get away. I fully expected that she was going to lose the fight in round three and was able to get takedowns and, you know, get top control and kind of hold on for dear life. So thank you, Dudakova. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you, Dudakova. Thank you, fighting through. But all, I, I had Silva, a terrible mistake. But but even then, it's like this Silva girl, she drops her. doesn't drop her, but she hits her. Girl clearly has a compromised leg, yep. sits down, and then what does she do? Grabs on the clinch. Yeah. Why would you clinch with her when the entirety of the fight has been her dominating you in the clinch and tossing you to the ground? Why would you initiate the clinch? Why wouldn't you kick the leg? Why wouldn't you jab and back away? Why wouldn't you make her move around on the clearly compromised leg? No, nope. zero ring IQ. Wow. And there's the other problem. Most of these fighters have bad ring IQ. They make terrible decisions in there. And I'm the ultimate one that made a terrible decision by backing them. I so mean, no one to blame but myself. It's all my fault at the end of the day, right? You should just play the Pat Mayo special, which is just yeah. long shot <laughs> female underdogs. Just the skill gap is pretty insignificant in a lot of these fights. So when you start getting these big underdogs, you know, you, you kind of have to start. Yeah, it's a, it's a game of math. That's all betting is. Anyway. That's that's enough for that. Let's get into a firecracker fight. Obviously, should be on the main card, but it's going to be the prelims main event. We got Charles Air Jordan taking on Nathaniel Wood. Minus one thirty-five Jordan, plus one fifteen for Wood. I mean, both of these guys super super high volume. I think I favor Charles Jordan's, you know, cardio. He he kind of tends to like put a pace on people. 
keep firing moving forward and uh, usually breaks them in round three, finds finishes. He's obviously worked on some of his grappling chops as well. We've seen that in some of his fights recently. He's, I think he's the most exciting fighter in Canada right now, to be perfectly honest. He's, um, he's definitely been uh, making some serious improvements. My biggest, I'm going I'm to be picking him for the purposes of the show. I don't know what I'm going to do from a betting perspective in this fight yet. So I'm going to see how weigh-ins play out and all that. And plus, there seems to be some money coming in on Wood, so maybe I get a better price on Charles Jourdain. But the, my biggest thing here is that Nathaniel Wood used to fight at 135 pounds and you know, he looked good against Charles Rosa last time out, but like Charles Rosa, as we know, is like a bit of a sitting duck, um, on the feet. Like he's not the most skilled striker. Usually likes to do most of his work, you know, flop into his back and fishing for submissions. So it's like, he looked, would look great. I mean, he, he cashed our prize picks over significant strikes. Like by the time we got to like the second round or by the time we got to the third round, you know, all good stuff, but now he's taking on a uh, a featherweight who also has decent stand-up. I wouldn't be surprised for Wood to be the faster fighter, maybe win the round, win round one, and uh, and and you know look really good in doing that. Uh, maybe that's the best strategy for me is like look to add Charles Jourdain after round one. I could see the speed being a big advantage for Nathaniel Wood, but I think as the fight goes on. Charles Rodane's going to wear him down, and I don't know if it is going to be a finish, but uh, I think Charles Rodane gets his hand raised on Saturday afternoon. So, Charles Rodane for me, what about you? Yeah, if this fight was in England, I'd feel a lot better about taking that underdog shot, it's but gross. I think I will take the underdog shot anyways than Nathaniel Wood. And I'm going to be looking good and feeling good until I maybe get knocked out at some point. That's my biggest concern is i think nathaniel wood can win this fight he's a little bit faster he's got a better better grappling better wrestling take the fight to the ground ground it. that's the way to do it thing is nathaniel wood has been hit a few times he's been cracked a few times and he doesn't really have the best durability i don't think you and i obviously remember him uh once upon a time in his ufc debut goes out there with a layup against johnny eduardo and he was getting smoked on the feet mm-hmm. against johnny eduardo until for whatever reason johnny shot the shot a takedown well, johnny always johnny always bet round two his opponent that was yeah, the story of Johnny. So it was just like, whoops, my bad. Even though he was looking <laughs> awesome standing, <laughs> I, I couldn't explain Classic. that one to you. But then, of course, the John Dodson fight. I thought Nathaniel Wood started out quite well. John Dodson just hits him with a clean counter. Dodson, of course, does have heavy hands. But uh, again, Nathaniel Wood, former flyaway John Dodson, absolutely knocks out Nathaniel Wood. And so since since then, it's like he's not that he's risk adverse. He's still got good output. He pushes one hell of a pace. But I, I've always been a little bit worried against a heavier puncher, someone that throws up, you know, flashy techniques. They're going to throw the knee up the middle. They're going to land that right hand. He could potentially have some problems. And in Charles Jourdain, there's very few guys that have ever fought Charles Jourdain and not got hit, you know, outside of Desmond Green at 155 pounds in his debut. The guy's pretty much in it all the time. You know, he's in a lot of fight of the nights. He's in a lot of wars and a lot of fights that just go back and forth. He takes your best shot. You're forced to take his best shot. And his last fight against Shane Burgos, who's an absolute animal, Man, I mean, there's a solid argument he beat Shane Burgos. Mm-hmm. He, in, even in the third round, he's got Burgos done. He's got Burgos out. Now, Burgos doesn't have the best durability himself. But yeah, against studs at 145, the best guys in the division, he's shown to be a little bit susceptible. I guess Nathaniel Wood, a former 35er, like you put that same wear on him, that same pace on him, it's going to be a problem. Now, the other thing is Burgos has BJJ Black Belt um, grappling. You know, he's a solid grappler. And while well, he did what most of the guys that beat Charles Jordan choose to do, and that's out grapple him. But even though he had the back for a vast majority of the time, 
Charles Jordan is like defensively very sound. So even if Nathaniel Wood does take him down, it's not like he's going to wreck him. It's not like he's just going to take his back and backpack him the whole time. He's going to be forced to work. And then the next round's going to start. And then the third round's going to start. And they call the kid Air Jordan for a reason. Not because Air Jordan, Air Jordan. It's because he soars through the goddamn air with his techniques. He'll throw the knee. He'll throw reckless abandon type stuff. And at some point he hits you. And when he does, he seems to just do a whole lot of damage. He's also not french from france but he's french from quebec and mma hasn't been legal in france for a very long time so my assumption is that the ufc is bringing in judges but one i don't know that for certain i don't know who the local guys that are going to be judging these things are two the fans are going to be going wild for the french guy regardless of if he's from a different country he is still the french guy he has a extremely fan uh, appeasing style he is a bit of a fan favorite and he's going to be going for it so even if he gives up a few takedowns here and there He's going to be racking up points in the judge's mind just by staying active off his back. So all of that would lead to Charles Jourdain. But, oh man, I just I, I would prefer to take the grappler over the striker. And I think Nathaniel Wood, if he shows off some ring IQ, gets to his wrestling. I mean, look at almost all of his fights. He'll use the grappling at some point. His last fight against Charles Rosa won. But uh, before that, John Castaneda took him down. John Dodson took him down. Jose Quinones took him down. Andre Ewell took him down. He generally does mix in the takedowns to his game. And against Charles Jourdain... That has always been his kryptonite. He shows 51% takedown defense. Mm -hmm. He shows 0% takedown offense, 0% takedown accuracy. He never took a guy down. He's given up a whole lot of takedowns. The Burgos fight, he did lose. Why? Because he did get taken down. Because he did get controlled. That's always going to be an issue to his game. Other guys have exploited as well. Andre Feely, five takedowns. You know, Desmond Green once upon a time, four or five takedowns. That's kind of his kryptonite. And then Nathaniel Wood goes after after that hard then yeah i think he could probably get him down he could probably have some success but you know what i was feeling dog shot here on 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 nathaniel wood but like the more we talk about it i just 15 minutes is a long time up a weight class versus a guy that's fought at 55 and throws caution in the wind canada let's go and Jordan's also dyed his hair platinum blonde. And as you can see from guys like charles Oliveira or platinum mike perry uh, Derek brunson I don't know what it is, man. It makes you way better. I don't know what it is. There's no statistical analysis to that. Dyeing your hair platinum blonde just gives you results, dude. Yeah, I think like the the, the wood, it, the fact that he was a former bantamweight, like trying to mix in takedowns against Charles Jordan, who I imagine on That's fight night is going fun. to have, I imagine he'll be at least like 10 pounds heavier than him. On, on fight night. I could be totally wrong on that. Maybe Nathaniel Wood just cut an absurd amount of weight. I'm sure he probably did uh, when he went to 135. But, like, Charles Jordan wasn't making 135 at any point in time. I just looked up uh, Beltor 280, um, which was, took place at the exact same uh, arena in Paris, France. And uh, Cousin Sal was, uh, was judging some of these. Some guy named Mirtha was in the mix. Brian Minor, Cartledge, uh, Dave Torelli. I don't know if his name right, is actually right. So Dave. they brought them in. So they, it seems like they brought them in. I imagine it's going to be probably the same strategy um, for them as well. So uh, if you were wondering about the judges, I mean, I imagine they're going to probably follow. Uh, hopefully Cousin Sal gets left back at home, but. Cousin Sal just happens to be everywhere these days. Uh, and he's messing up scorecards left, right, and center. Not on that Bellator card, he didn't mess anything up. But uh, Sal, you got to watch out for Cousin Sal. Uh, moving on down, we got Abus Magomedov taking on Dustin Stoltzfus. Minus 270, Magomedov, plus 230, Stoltzfus. Cody, you were talking about it earlier. Uh, what's your take here? 
Yeah, so again, it's just really hard to get a read on this one. Simple fact is like uh, Abu Magomedov's just not very good. He's never been very good. I don't want to call him fraudulent, but I'll explain this situation to you. You can tell me if you think it's fraudulent, Paul Shaughnessy. Mm -hmm. So first of all, he's a uh, Russian by way of Germany. So it's like, mm, okay, so he didn't stay in Russia. He ended up in Germany. That's fair. Well, you do see the Kamzat Chemayevs ended up in Sweden. You do see, you know, some other guys ended up, you know, uh, different places. Okay, fair. We got Nasruddin Imovov. We'll talk about him. He ended up in France. But Germany, not exactly known for, like, super high-level MMA, so not the greatest place to end up. Okay, fair. He's from Dagestan, Russia, so you know he's got that grappling. No, he's got that grappling. No, not so. Not so. His uh, beginning of his career is almost certainly made up. Most of the guys do not exist. And then his first loss is to Andreas Stahl, Swedish wrestler, who completely outgrappled him, right? His next loss to Rafael Mox, he got choked down in the first round. He lost to Mikhail Parlo, a Danish wrestler who completely outgrappled him. He's not a good grappler, but he goes on some middle of the pack run against a 31 and 25 fighter and a 15 and four fighter. Oh, there was that 14 and seven guy. And Signs of PFL where he gets layups over Daniil Villefort, Anderson Gungalas. The Gassan Umlatov fight, he wins the first round. He loses the second round. It's only a two-round fight. They judge that whoever wins the first goes on. It should be whoever won the second goes on, man. The fight's trending in a certain direction. But no, he got to move on. He beat Saibu C and then lost to Lewis Taylor by knockout 33 seconds. So... For a guy that's from Dagestan, Russia, his wrestling is not very good. His chin, he got knocked out by Lewis Taylor, who was in his 40s. And, I mean, just really should have never been in that spot to begin with. His chin's not all that good. He pr prides himself on his grappling, you know, establish some top control and try to get, uh, his, you know, his jiu-jitsu going. But, again, I mean, I, I don't know. I just don't think his wrestling is all that good to get the fight to the ground in the first point. His cardio, really not all that good. And his striking, not all that good. He's middling. He's extremely middling. They booked him to fight a couple times in the UFC. He pulled out against Jeremy Urshard. He pulls out against Kirziev. He's officially not had a fight in about two years. Mm -hmm. He's had one fight in the last three and a half years. Man, that's a that's a bad look. That's a bad look when you're coming in as like a somewhat sizable favorite. So all of that I would have to say is just like not. I don't like it. Dustin Stolfus, meanwhile, he's another another guy that ended up in Germany by way of another country. Originally from Pennsylvania, ends up in Germany. He wrestled a little bit like high school level, not much big success. But I mean, you can tell he wants to wrestle. His contender series fight with Joseph Pfeiffer, he won. He's big slam, takes him down. But um, Pfeiffer breaks his arm. I mean, it was kind of fluky, but at the same time, it was a nice slam takedown. Can't, can't take that away from him. Kyle Doug is with the full three rounds. Rodolfo Vieira, he made it into the third, got choked in the third. Jeremy Urshard, he's winning the fight, gets choked out in the third. It's like he keeps coming up just short. And the Dwight Grant fight, he finally does get him to the ground. He's able to use his wrestling a little bit. He looked a lot better there. He's got experience. He's got the cardio. He's got the better top game. What this does come down to is that like his wrestling really isn't all that good. And no. I don't know that he can out cleanly out grapple Magomed. Oh, he can out grapple Magomed. I don't know that he'll cleanly take him down. Mm -hmm. If he does not take him down and this ends up being a striking battle, it is going to be a terrible fight. But a fight that I do think Abu Magomedov is going to have more power. Like he'll probably be able to land the, the heavier shots. But even if he does, he's going to tire himself out, right? I, I just, I don't know. I got a feeling that Stolfus is going to pull this one off. He'll either just tire him out, end up on top. He'll push a, he'll push a pace. He'll push some pressure. He's got to get the fight to the ground. But this guy's got pretty good top control. And so that's what I'm banking on here, that he's going to end up on top at some point, have the volume, have the experience, and not be injured, not be banged up. Go out there and take care of business. Don't be the guy that's fought twice in four years because you've got injury problems. 
be the fresher, more experienced guy. So I, I think I'll take the dog shot, Dustin Stolpes. But again, I mean, it's hard to get really excited and confident about it. I'm picking uh, Abus Magomedov in this spot. I think that uh, I would be more concerned for him if Stolfus was like a power striker. I mean, yeah, the the one fight that he looked his best in was against Dwight Grant. And frankly, Dwight Grant is a 170-pounder coming up to 185 pounds for the first time. And we've talked about, like, switching between those weight classes. Like, that's a significant upgrade. So having the size advantage against Dwight Grant lent to him being able to pull a, uh, a slight underdog uh, upset in that spot. I do not want to touch minus 270 with a 10-foot pole. I just think what Stoltzfus does, not having the wrestling he really wants to lean on that grappling. I just don't think he's going to be able to get off his best weapons. I see Avis throws like a half, half decent, like, you know, front kicks, um, maintain range, win the fight that way. But yeah, I kind of agree. It could be super, super ugly. And at minus 270, definitely not taking the shot. Uh, I'm definitely not really adding him to really anything with any sort of confidence. So I'll pick Magomedov, but uh, not betting it. We got M Mikhail Figlak taking on Ferris Zayam, minus 205 Figlak, plus 175 Zayam. Everyone's obviously familiar with Zayam. Uh, was cut from the promotion, kind of unfair. It's like, you know, you can't hype up Terrence McKinney the way that they've been hyping up Terrence McKinney. And, you know, and then cut Ferris Zayam, who was 2-2 two and two in the promotion. Uh, brought him back, obviously, for this spot. Went back and watched a couple of uh, Figlak's uh, uh, Cage Warriors fights. I like this guy, man. I think he's pretty solid. I mean, he's obviously 8-0. There's going to be a little bit of hype behind him. But, like, I really like he, like, you know, he's a pressure fighter. He's really moving forward, and he's always throwing combinations. It's like three-piece combinations every single time he moves forward. Um, and then he has some pretty good, like, body lock takedowns. That seems to be his bread and butter. Grappling is on point when the fight gets to the mat. Doesn't have much of a submission game. But I wouldn't be shocked, you know, fair as I am kind of taking this fight on short notice. If Figlak, whose cardio in these fights looks on point. This guy can fight f a full 15 minutes. Chin, when he has been hit, has been on point. Um, yeah, throwing uh, multiple shots when he's pressuring his opponent. I think Figlock gets the win here. I know minus 205 is not pretty. I'm I'm waiting to see if I can get some, like, real grease fire, Cody. Figlock doesn't have a submission on his record, but, like, the way this guy fights, I feel like he's kind of one of those guys that's going to, like, break people down. Um, so Figlock round three sub is, is super, super greasy, but I've been waiting to see how that comes out. It looks like it's 40 to 1. Um at some shops right now. It's kind of where my head was at on that. But I think Figlak wins either by decision or late. But I think I think this guy has, has some real skill. And uh, we'll see where he goes from there. And nobody's doubting that fair as I am has been brought into this situation for the purposes of finding, you know, this rising contender and an opponent on relative short notice. Um, and finally, on prize picks, let me just pull up my entries. Um, two takedowns is what Figlak is listed at in this fight. He may only get, uh, he may only get to two, but wouldn't be surprised to see him get like at least three, four, something like that. So I think oh, or more than, uh, two takedowns 
is like where I like that. Like you go through Jamie Malarkey took down fair as I am five times. Don Madge, who really isn't known for being some sort of exquisite wrestler, took him down twice. And then the Vendermini fight. I was on Vendermini in that spot. Vendermini didn't wrestle with Fair Zayam until round three, and then when he finally did decide to wrestle, took him down, got a uh, got a 10-8 on one judge's scorecard, and uh, it was a majority decision win for Fair Zayam. But it's like if Luigi stuck to the wrestling early on in the fight, he probably smashes him down the stretch there. So I like Figlock. Figlock late uh, has my attention just because, like, the difference between, like, Figlock by decision, which is, like, pretty much even money right now, and, like, him getting a late finish. You know me. I'm a value boy always looking for for the wide props. So Figlock round three, my official pick for the show. What about you? I got Figlock as well. I think he goes out there and just constant pressure, man. He's always coming forward. He's got nasty boxing combinations. Dude works the body to like high efficiency and just slows you down. Always coming forward. His wrestling is just a dog on a bone. Eventually just muscles you to the ground and then he goes to top. I'm sure he can't submit guys. Paul promises that he doesn't even look like he cares. He just pounds you with ground and pound. So yeah, the guy, the guy's a junkyard dog for sure, and he seems like he's going to be a fan favorite in the UFC. I mean, he had a solid amateur career, had a notable loss to Jack Shore, which was a competitive fight at the time, and then undefeated as a pro, man. Cage Warriors would have given him a title fight. I'm sure he would have won the 55-pound title in Cage Warriors and then come over, but UFC likes what they see. I mean, he's already a somewhat refined prospect. He's not super young. I think he's uh, fixed up a lot of holes in his game. And these Polish fighters, man, they're just so damn strong. They're extremely durable. The guys that got cardio, they're going to be a problem. And I think he's just going to be coming forward. For as I am, you mentioned, you know, it was unfair that he was cut. But here's the deal. He's 25 years old. He could have gone back to the drawing board, become a better fighter on the regional scene, and come back. He hasn't actually had a whole lot of success in the UFC. Does show a 2-2 record. But keep in mind, the debut against Don Madge, taking down three times against a South African Muay Thai fighter. Mm-hmm. He showed, like you mentioned, takedown defense, very big problem. He also landed 10 significant strikes in 15 minutes. Bad luck. Jamie Malarkey fight. There were 17 media members that scored that fight for MMA decisions. 15 of them scored it for Jamie Malarkey. I scored the fight for Jamie Malarkey. Of course, I had Jamie Malarkey. Judges did, didn't agree. I mean, again, he outstruck Jamie Malarkey, but you got taken out on a pile of times. He got controlled. That was a bum decision. He should effectively be 0-2 in the UFC at this point. The Luigi Vendramini fight, yes, he wins the first two rounds, right? Doesn't doesn't give a, a, give a great account of himself, but does win the first two rounds. And as you mentioned, Vendramini completely washed him out in the third round. Maybe it was a 10-8. Maybe it wasn't quite a 10-8. It was a dominating round. Mm-hmm. By far the most decisive round of the whole fight. And Zayam tired. His game is super primitive and basic. And yet, even with that, he's still tiring out. And then McKinney just runs right through him. Didn't even need a takedown. Fight just falls to the floor. McKinney takes his back and chokes him out. So realistically, dude, he could be 1-3. He could be 0-3-1 with that 10-8 draw, right? He has not had a whole lot of success in the UFC. But this is what's more concerning. You wouldn't say, well, he's still only 25. And hey, I mean, Larky's a stud. And, uh, Terrence McKinney's a stud. And those guys are pretty tough guys. Let's give him a pass. He doesn't throw shit, Paul. He doesn't throw shit. He averages 2.06 strikes landed per minute, which means he lands about 11 significant strikes per round, which means he lands about 33 significant strikes per fight. It's by far the lowest average of any fighter on this card, and it's one of the lower averages you'll see from guys that consider themselves strikers. Against Madge, he landed 10. Against Malarkey, career high, 47. Against Vendramini, 39. And of course, against McKinney, didn't really have much time. 
Got smoked out of there. His volume is way too low, man. Way too low. Now you're fighting a guy that conceivably has a large grappling advantage over you, big wrestling advantage, has great cardio, is going to come forward and throws in combinations. Where does Ferez, where does he win? Other than he throws his knee straight up the middle and lines the guy up in the face. Puncher's yeah. chance, sure. Outside of that, he's going to get worked over. I would say that, uh, that, uh, this would be like a top ticket material kind of guy, but because it's his debut, he's undefeated and it's in France and it's a French guy. Yeah. You would drop him down a second ticket. Cause like, you don't want to, you don't want to put yourself in that spot. I don't think, but yeah, from what I've seen from this kid, he uh, looks like a legitimate prospect and he'll have some, some success in the UFC. Yeah, no, I, I was actually pleasantly surprised kind of looking at him. I was like, this kid looks, I mean, what I really liked is yeah, the pressure game. And like, he always is throwing, as you were saying, like shots to the body, and then coming up top, like, it's, like, two, three. Sh Every single time he throws strikes, it's, like, it's combinations. He's not, you know, pitter-patter with it. Like, he is he is very, very active. And I think that's a really – unless fair as I am lands the perfect shot, I think it's a really, really tough matchup for him. So, you know, he's pretty unknown in the MMA streets. But I think, uh, yeah, I think he should probably be able to mix in the uh, the wrestling quite handily here as well. But he's, he can he can he can handle himself on the feet. So yeah, oh, uh, more than two takedowns. I think that's a pretty good look in this spot as well on on prize picks there. All right, moving on down, we got uh, Nasruddin Imovov taking on Joaquin Buckley minus two sixty. Imovov, Imovov, sorry, uh, Buckley can be had for plus two twenty. What's your take here? Yeah, I got mixed opinions on this one too. So like at first glance, it seems like Imovov probably beats him up, right? He's got better, you know, better output. Uh, he's on a good little roll right now. He can hurt Buckley. Buckley to me just seems super overrated. He's got the sweetest KO in the history of the UFC. Never take that away from him. And then it's just been like kind of middling performances. Like when he wins, it don't look great. When he loses, it really don't look great. I mean, the Jordan Wright fight, not very good. He got kicked in the head by Alicia DiTrico. That was a bad look considering DiTrico not a power guy. His fight with Antonio Arroyo was pretty sloppy until he knocked him on the third. His fight with Abdul uh, Razak Al-Hassan, he got taken down three times. Rewatching that fight, back at the time I thought Buckley won, like not super clean, but like, yeah, yeah, he definitely won the fight. Watching it back, strong argument he lost that fight. He may have lost the first and third round. And by the third round, he's cooked. He is done. The fight ends. He's lying on the canvas, like can't even get himself up. None of this looks good. And then against Albert Durayev, man, he looked good. That's the first time since a flashy K over Impic and Sanganai that it's like, he's still only 28. He is maturing as a fighter. And like, listen, the guy's very strong physically. His problem is that he doesn't have a really big reach. He's like short for the division at 185 pounds. So he like overextends himself on a whole lot of punches, misses, tires himself out. But Physically, he is a threat. And I guess the Dariah fight, I mean, everything he, he he threw, he sat on it. It was accurate. You know, he, he was waiting. His cardio looked way better than it had ever been. Mm -hmm. You did see two fights ago against Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. He did score five takedowns over a credible judo black belt. I think he's got the physicality to get Imovov down. I think he's got the punching power to just keep him honest and, like, keep him from throwing in large volumes, right? Like, I think he is a talented guy. But he's prone to just being his worst own worst enemy sometimes, making mistakes. He doesn't wear a punch particularly well. When he gets hit, he tends to go sideways or turn his back. All that's not good. And with Imanvov, he's you know, he should be able to go out there and land some shots on him. But again, when you look at Imanvov, his debut against Jordan Williams wasn't that good. Like Williams no. walked through everything he had, and it was kind of a sluggish performance. But he did win, but not a great performance. The Phil Hawes fight is a terrible fight. 
terrible fight because one, it shows he has an inability to keep guys from uh, clinching with him. His takedown defense is bad. His cardio is bad. His ring IQ is bad. He's got Hawes hurt twice and just falls into the clinch both times. Like, questionable. Now, two-fight winning streak looks good, and he has looked better. But Ian Heiner's fought a terrible game plan. He gassed himself out before he even attempted his first takedown. And against Edmund Shabazian, Shabazian got him down early in the first round and then gassed out. Like, he, he took on two guys that came in with bad gas tanks, and he took advantage of both of them. Buckley, at his worst, is going to come in with a bad gas tank. Buckley, at his best, could, might be able to just muscle him around in the clinch, land big shots, push him up against the cage, rip him to the ground, and have success. And so I just know I'm going to get burned by a big underdog at some point in the card, and I've been thinking maybe Buckley's that guy. But, again, I just don't think I can pull the trigger. It's in France. He will involve a Russian fighter by way of France. Buckley's going to have to knock this guy out or, like, dominate him, and I don't think he's knocking him out. As far as dominating him goes, it's going to tax his cardio. He's got to go from America all the way to France. This other guy lives in France. He's waking up and fighting according to a regular time zone. Mm-hmm. I just think that, like, Emo, but just the line. I think it's the line. The line's what got me bugged. I'm okay with picking Emovov. That could be a, a very value, uh, a fine pick. It's just, like, the line is just so – it's too scary to me. I I kind of agree um, on really all fronts there. Um I just think the line kind of scares me off of it, but we're in, you know, in France, people probably, well, maybe not. He's a Russian guy. I don't know if they'll take to him because he lives there and trains out of there. Ah, probably, but, um, yeah. The, a French it, first name. Yeah. Nasruddin is, uh, Nasr- I'm leaning towards Nasruddin Imovov to get the win, but actually what I think is actually the best value, um, of this fight is fight goes to decision is plus 155. I mean, everyone will remember Joaquin Buckley from, you know, the the head or the head kick knockout that was one of the nicest, uh, you know, spinning back kick with like that, the held, uh, the held uh, lead kick or whatever. Like the, whatever. I don't even know what you call that technique, but like people remember him as a finisher, it's but it's like. Insiguri? Is that the actual term yeah. for it? Well, I thought it was in pro wrestling. That's basically what he did to the dude. But it's like, uh, he's been, rel- like, I mean, the, the fight against Kevin Holland, he took that on very, very short notice. Had a decent account for himself. Kind of kept moving forward. Obviously, he's had tons of finishes. But I go to, like, that Abdul Razak Al-Hassan fight. And it's like, the fact that that went to decision leads me to believe that, like, this is not so clear cut that one of these guys is going to finish the other guy a lot of they both have uh serious finishes in the UFC but like Imovov going the decision with uh with Chinny Phil Haas on top of that it's like I think that's the best bet in this fight is a uh, fight goes to decision plus 155 I haven't added it yet but I'm considering it Pat Imovov over uh, one takedown, I think, is. I was looking at that. Oh, I was too. I was looking at his stats. But he's, his stats it. aren't like it's not. Yeah, too guy sexy. doesn't take anyone down ever. He no. has two takedowns in his four fights. But like in this matchup, you would think you know rational rational uh, strategy would make you think that's like uh, if he's got that in his back pocket, I mean, there hasn't been very much proof that he has. I mean, Buckley. He's like he's not going to just stand in like. Stand and bang with Buckley sounds like a bad idea. Buckley's only been taken down five times in seven fights. Yeah. He hasn't really taken on anybody with, like, I mean, the well, fact that. It doesn't sound the, like this guy takes anyone down either. 
No, but like yeah, here, but here's, Buc- he got taken down twice by Duryev, and Duryev has proven to be a fraud from that fight. He got taken down three times by Abdul Razak Al Hassan, who like literally. Yeah, but he also took him down five times. Yeah, I know. Like he was, takes anyone. That was a slop fest. But it's like you look at the guys that he's taken on. He's not really fought on Jordan. I don't think Jordan Wright has ever like attempted a takedown. Impa Kasangadai, former football player, doesn't wrestle. Uh, Kevin Holland, he's really good at getting taken down. Like he hasn't really taken on anybody with any sort of wrestling ability. But yeah, you in fairness. You know, maybe maybe it's the fact that his his name ends with O V that uh, that led me to it. I added Imovov over uh, one takedown. It may get to just one. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't land one at all. But like, I feel like you would be wise to try to mix takedowns here because on the feet, it's a very competitive fight. May, may I introduce the next fight? At least the first guy. Ah, uh, we. Bewa Saint Denis. He takes on. Gabriel Miranda, Benoit Saint Denis is a minus two seventy five favorite. Miranda can be had for plus two seventy five. Benoit Saint Denis taking on uh, you know uh, somebody that they sh- signed on relative short notice. Saint Denis was supposed to take on Cristo Giagos in this spot. Uh, and Chris Ochiago is a really good wrestler who was probably going to kind of force this fight to the feet. What we've learned from St. Denis is like the guy has a beard, not just the beard that you see on it, but like this guy took an un- unimaginable amount of damage against Eliza Zaleski Dos Santos, who is a very, very flashy striker. He took that fight on short notice and then follows it up with a rear naked choke win over Nicholas Stoltz. He obviously likes his grappling. That's what he likes to lead on. This Gabriel Miranda guy is a bit of a wild card. He has a twirly mustache. He has a twirly mustache. (laughs) Um, But on top of that, it's like if you go through his record, um, he's, he's fought on this show called Face the Danger. Like multiple times. If you click on Face the Danger on Tapology, this promotion has been flagged by Tapology for uh, record padding and mismatches. Like he took on like two guys in this promotion that were five and zero, who's never fought ever again. It's just like this is like our general. Who's that? Uh, the guy with the neck tad who. Uh, uh, Mos- yeah, Mo- Mos- Oscar Maserati. It's kind of like his. This guy's record is like is real scandalous. I don't know if I buy into a whole bunch of it. Um, uh, from what I kind of saw, like quickly watching some tape is like, he's got some flashy submission skills, particularly off of his back. Maybe he has some success early. He's, he's trained out of, uh, MMA masters. So decent, decent gym. Um, obviously Ricardo Lamos, uh, Ricardo Lamas is what, probably one of his main, uh, sparring partners on a daily basis at the gym, which is, it's, it's all good stuff. But he seems kind of like a one-trick pony. It's like most of his wins come by early submission. Benoit Saint-Denis is a good grappler in his own right. This could be a little bit dicey early, but I think as the fight plays on, Benoit Saint-Denis will take over. And if this happens, it's not favored, obviously, to go to decision. But if this fight happens to go to decision, who do you think is getting the nod? The guy named uh, Patrice, can you can you drop... If this fight goes to decision, probably gets the win. But uh, I think could be a little bit dicey early. I don't think Saint-Denis is some sort of major prospect moving forward. Um, I think he's a fun fighter. He's a very, very durable fighter. Decent grappler in his own right. 
I think he gets the win here, minus 275. I think we're probably just going to get a better number um, later in round one. Or maybe he takes him down. Gabriel Miranda's not able to do anything off of his back because St. Denis has all the answers for that. And then you never get the price whatsoever. But, yeah, Miranda may be uh, dangerous early, but longer this fight goes on, I'm going to – yeah, not even lean. Like I think Saint Denis takes over, and the, I, you know me, I always like betting on guys that have like crazy durability, and that's what I see in Benoit Saint Denis. This guy can take a punch, um, and he's super, super, super tough. Skills are coming along. He's still, uh, you know, got some work to do in his development, but at 26 years old, like he's got plenty of years to do that. Benoit Saint Denis for the uh, victory here. What about you, Code? Yeah, okay, so, and then interestingly enough, the over-under is set at one and a half, yeah. right? So they're expecting just, like, pure violence right off the hop. But the cool thing here is that Benoit Saint-Denis has one knockout win and, like, eight submission wins. And his opponent has one knockout win and 15 submissions. So neither guy has any knockouts. They're both grapplers. It's grappler versus grappler. And as such, Benoit Saint-Denis is going to take him down. He is going to get on top. Miranda is going to defend and try to stall and try to survive for spots. I like that over one and a half. Could Benoit just break him down and smash him into oblivion past that one and a half? Yeah, yeah, probably. But I think like his jiu-jitsu is going to be good enough to, uh, you know, keep it relatively competitive for the early going. And then just slowly, I think Benoit is going to break him down. And yeah, when you look at Saint-Denis, he's actually got some legitimate wins. Like when he was working his way up at the regional scene, he's routinely fighting guys 4-0, 2-0, 7-1. and <clears throat> But he's got a legitimate win over Mario Said, who's like longtime regional scene veteran. Luan Santiago fought in the UFC, right? He's made his debut against Zaleski's, uh, Zaleski's Dos Santos, who's just an absolute stud, who's been in there with some of the best guys in the game. As a knockout win over Sean Strickland. And then that last fight against Stolte, you see him just putting everything together. Physically, he's a big, strong wrestler, right? That's where he's going to have his most success. Against a guy like Zaleski Dos Santos, tracking him down, getting a hold of him, peeling him to the ground consecutively or consistently, that proved to be a bit of a stretch. But, I mean, yeah, he took every shot he had. His cardio checked out. His desire and his will checked out, and he kept coming forward. And I guess Nicholas Stoltz. Nicholas Stoltz is a decent enough grappler, but it was the pressure. He just broke him down at will. When I think about this fight against uh, Gabriel Miranda, first and foremost, he's getting ready to take on Christos Giagos. Now, Giagos is a big, strong, physical guy as well with lackluster cardio, but sure to God, this is going to be grappler versus grappler, strong wrestling, uh, strong uh, scrambles, and then whoever gets tired first, probably Giagos, is going to end up losing. So St. Denis would have had a good camp, a full camp, and you've been prepared to grapple and stay out of harm's way. Mm -hmm. Gabriel Miranda, it just looks massively ballooned. And you mentioned it. He's fought for, you know, strange promotions. But it's wins over 0 and 1, 0-2, 1-3, 0-0, 0-7, 1-3, 0-2 and 1. Okay, first guy that had a winning record. Okay, we got a 2-1. and For the record, that guy is now 2-3, and right? I mean, they're not good. He follows that up. His career best win over a guy that's two and one is finally making it. He's seven and two at the time. And he follows that up by fighting a guy that's 0 oh and eight. Like, what are you doing? You're wasting yeah. your time. He gets brought to Japan with a nine and two record to take on Hiroki Nagoa, right? The guy's 22 and 19 at the time with 12 draws. Yeah. Old, right? Not good. Physically, not very strong. The thing is, Miranda's got no wrestling. He, he can throw up submissions off his back, but like he's physically. Not strong, right? Wagner Rock is a stud on the ground. He TKOs him, and that, that makes you believe Jesus is 2016. The guy's been fighting forever and has had virtually no real success. He's never really beaten a guy that you could go back and say, this is a legitimate win. 
Finally, he probably did against that Fernando Noriega. But it's like this is later in his career. Good for him for going to MMA Masters. Good for him to try to get some done. But you're never going to get signed fighting in Brazilian favelas, never challenging yourself, never getting any mainstream media attention. Who's going to find you? So, yeah, he's come stateside. Good for him. Since he's come stateside, I, I wouldn't know what to tell you. I just don't think that he his wrestling's not good enough to take Saint Denis down. His striking's not good enough to get into a striking battle because, believe me, his striking is not very good. His only chance is to snatch up some some submission off of his back, which, mm -hmm. again, is possible, but not likely, man. Saint Denis is going to dictate where he wants to fight. If he just wants to batter him standing, then that's what he's going to do. If for whatever reason he's not having success there or he's not feeling comfortable with it, he's just going to take him down and get up on top. The fact that he's had eight submission victories of his own shows that he's a grappler at heart. He's coming off a nice submission victory over Nicholas Stoltz. He's strong. He's heavy. He's physical. He's fighting at home against a short-nosed replacement. Got, got to be Benoit Saint-Denis, right? Does the minus 275 seem a little bit deep for Benoit Saint-Denis? Yeah, it does. But yeah, I think you got to pay to play. And these are one of those spots where it actually looks decent. Yeah, I agree with most of that. Uh, the only concern, and actually that minus 105 doesn't even exist anymore. People have hit it, so they were on the same page as as, uh, as Cody, but it's at, like minus 125. It's minus 110 in some spots right now still. But my only concern about that is Gabriel Miranda got knocked out by uh, Wagner Roca uh, in round one. Um, I would have to go and try to find that fight and watch that fight, but that's not a good look. I mean, that's a grappler that doesn't really have crazy you know, knockout ability. Who ices you in the first round? This Miranda guy, it's like he either, you know, lives by the sword, dies by the sword. That's kind of how he seems to fight. So, yeah, over one and a half kind of scares me a little bit in that spot. But a lot of what you said is like if the grappling gets neutralized, like, and it's just a striking affair between the two of them, you know, um, getting over one and a half makes a lot of sense, I suppose, in that situation. Because, uh, yeah, Ben Wessington, he hasn't really shown any sort of you know, killer knockout power uh, that we have seen so far. But he's only 26, so maybe maybe the improvements are ahead. We got Kalita taking on Christian Quinones. Minus 110, straight pick him. Who you got, Code? Yeah, so this one I also have trouble going back and forth with. On one hand, you've got Christian Quinones. Seems like he'll probably have the better volume. He'll probably look to use the leg kick, stay at range. It is a big cage. You know, just chop away at him. But, like, I don't know. Like, he's got a nice-looking record, but how much can you realistically take away? We saw him in the Contender Series about a year ago uh, against Long Zhao. Cardio looked good. You know, again, he had decent leg kicks. He looks like he's a fairly mobile guy. Got some speed to him. I just don't know how realistically good he is. He's 26, right? He's probably going to get in there with somebody that's tough, and that's when you're really going to see him have to sink or swim. But uh, to this point, it just seems like he's a little bit green still. I am going to pick him to meet Khalid Taha, but I will fully admit this. Khalid Taha is much better than this guy at his best. I just mm -hmm. don't know if he's at his best. He's small for the well, division. Yeah, this is a guy that I always positive, thought. He tested positive for roids, so I don't know if he's, a, if he's able to be at his best anymore. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? When you look at his run, it's not good. Like, he was undefeated when he lost to Takafumi uh, Atsuka and Ryzen. Like, Atsuka's nearing 40 and is like a 40-fight veteran. So the thing is, is Taha was juiced up. Comes in, he's wearing wrestling shoes, and he tired out. He's got bad cardio. And then he debuts for the UFC, lost to Nad Naraman. He got taken down. He tired out. Bad cardio. The win over Boston Salmon, quick 25-second knockout, yeah, showed he had some big power. The win over Bruno Silva looked good because Bruno Silva, bad record some, at times, but he's a very talented guy. There's two things you need to consider. One, Bruno Silva is a flyweight. Taha is a bantamweight. So he was taking on a guy that was moving up a weight class. Second of all, 
he tested positive for steroids, right? Mm-hmm. So like you said, it, it's a no contest. I mean, I'm looking Third at his Instagram. He is still lo- he's looking great. He's got a picture no, of him with no. like a with like a taco bowl, a taco salad bowl, like a you know an actual taco shell as like the bowl. And oh, like, like that Trump picture? The guy. I mean, I could probably turn it. Around. Oh, what are you what are you having a beat behind that desk ball? Here, oh. I'll, I'll throw you up there. Is that what you're looking at when uh, Cody's talking? Yeah. Oh, you're having a beat when I'm talking? Jesus. Bro. I'm always I'm always you know I'm having always a beat. Researching on the fly here, guys. Um, no, he look, I mean he looks he looks in incredible shape he always does show up in incredible shape um sorry i interrupted Listen, you people are gonna be mad in no, the comments no that i interrupted you but yeah the guy's jacked we all know he's super jacked and physical no doubt about it but he stands five foot five and has a 69 inch reach so just like the higher the ranks are gonna go up guys are gonna be too big too strong the last time he won was when bruno silva you're taking on a natural flyweight who moved up you were on the juice, and you missed weight. He came in at 137, missed mm-hmm. weight by one pound. So now his two subsequent fights, he's not on the juice in theory, and he had to make weight, and he just he looked awful, man. He like Against Rowney Barcelos, he had zero volume. He just allowed Rowney, who's a low-volume puncher, just completely style on him, 120 significant strikes landed, tripled him up on the punch stats, took him down twice, bad luck. Against Sergey Morozov, I mean, he just got taken down six times. There really wasn't much he could do in that spot, but... Physically, just too small, right? The striking, yeah, that's a big power, but he doesn't have cardio to go like a hard 15. So I would say maybe try to bet Kinone as live simply because I do think Taha is the better fighter. But I think he's going to start to tire. He hasn't officially had a fight in a little over a year now. He's not old by any stretch, but he does struggle to make the weight. He hasn't had to make the weight in a long time. He's always had bad cardio. It's not something I think... He's going to magically shore up. And the way he just like lines up like heavy power on all of his punches leads him to believe that he's going to get tired. Probably wins the first round. He known as would have to work his way back into it. The other thing is, is that they had straight up brought him in to get killed because they did bring fight him in. Taylor Lapolis. Yeah. So they book it that Taylor Lapolis is making his triumphant return back in France. The guy's an absolute gangster. Very, very good fighter. And you uh, never should have got cut from the UFC in the first place. I think he's three and one when he got cut, which is stupid. But he, they were bringing in Taha to lose. Taylor Lapolis unfortunately pulls out, and now Quinones. I don't know where he's at, how he's feeling about it, what the case is. Much better fight for Taha, I'd say. But I don't think the UFC expected much of him to begin with. So, last thing I will say is when you look at Quinones, all of his losses are like you know uh, he lost his first fight against Jose Guadalupe by third round knockout, fifty-seven seconds in. Second losses to Cristiano Souza. He got knocked out 235 of round two. And against a Vic- Victor Madrigal, he got subbed in the third round. He's been finished, all three of his losses, been finished inside the distance, two by knockout. So I would say a guy like Taha that hits as hard as he does and is as physically strong could snatch up a submission. But keep in mind, the kid hasn't been knocked out in six years, and he hasn't lost a fight in four years. Like, And he's only 26 years old. I would reckon that he made his pro debut at 18 years old and was learning on the job. And now you start to see a much better version of him. Why he's been off for a year, hopefully not a bad injury, but I feel like he might be able to pull away in the second and the third round just by throwing up volume. But again, dude, this is not a fight. This is not a fight that I would like have a ton of financial investment in because uh, you can see it going either way and it's going to be greasy regardless. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm I'm leaning towards Taha. I may actually bet Taha. Just the 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 wealth of UFC experience. I mean, the the losses that he's had on his record are against legitimate guys. Like, you know, Sergey Morozov is a is a solid all all around fighter. Rowney Barcelos, your boy, um, 
solid all around fighter like did he he got absolutely dominated by those guys but just being in there with those guys is impressive enough and and winning a even if it was a little bit gassed up by um arm triangle choke against bruno Silva shows that he has not just power in his hands but he's, he's working on that grappling he's only 29 years old in his own right this is like i mean they were setting him up to fail like they were ho- like taylor lapolis hometown guy this was a situation for Lapalus to get a win against one of the lower level guys in the UFC. But it's like Christian Quinones went like pretty much life and death with uh, on his contender series fight and ended up in this spot. Like, I think yeah. I think it's Taha Taha for me. And like the market kind of disagrees. Like it was Taha was like minus one fifty, and there's been action coming in on Quinones. I feel like as the week goes on. If I can get some dog money on Taha, I'm I'm gonna take it. Just he's been in there. He's been under the bright lights. He's been in fights that Christian Canonas hasn't, you know, felt the the roar of the crowd and stuff. I know that those are all like cliche things, but um yeah, I think Taha at a pick'em is is the side I'm gonna pick here at least. Uh haven't added it. We'll uh, we'll see where we get where the line goes and, and all of that jazz as we get closer to Saturday afternoon. And finally, we got Stephanie Egger taking on Eileen Perez. Egger minus 245. Perez can be had for plus 210. Egger obviously coming off of the very, very controversial. Was there a submission? Not really. I didn't really see it on uh, on rewatch against Mero Bueno Silva. Uh, round, round one armbar loss. Eileen Perez watched her a few of her fights on the regional scene, which were kind of hilarious. I mean, she's fighting next to nobody. The one person that she fought that I guess had a half decent record was Tamiris Vidal. Um, hilarious scene wherever this event was taking place. Tamiris Vidal is the girl that they brought in to take on Ramona Pasquale. Um, so, you know, they want to have that Hong Kong market. Like, that fight is hilarious because Eileen Perez loses that fight by DQ. She has three different fouls. One in, you know, there was a low, a lady low blow. There was a, a strike to the back of the head when they were on the ground. And then there was a uh, memory doesn't serve uh, great for me right now. Either way, three, uh, she loses it based on, like, three fouls. They give her the DQ. Um... Egger, obviously, she's obviously been in there with a lot of people. This fight is favored to go, not to go to decision. I think the big problem here for what I see from Eileen Perez is that she like, likes going forward, likes muscling people. She was supposed to take on uh, Zara Farron at 145 pounds. It's like they brought in somebody for Zara Farron to maybe remotely have a chance of getting a win in, in France. Um, Farron, it's... I mean, I don't really understand why she's still on the roster. Perez was a big favorite in that spot, and then in steps Egger. This fight's taking place at 145 pounds, but they're both actual bantamweights, so nobody really has a significant size advantage in this fight. I think what I see from Eileen Perez, and maybe her BJJ will hold up, it's really tough looking at like the low-level competition to really know where it's at, but I feel like she does her best work when she takes the fight to the mat, but while she's down there, I think she's going to get out grappled by Stephanie Egger. And if she's, if it stays on the feet, like maybe she can win the fight that way. Egger's volume is super, super low. But like this looks like your patented armbar from guard type of spot there, Cody. So I on prize picks, I have uh, Egger 
less than two takedowns. Um, and Egger, that's, this is the one that I kind of split and Egger less than 35, 35.5 significant strikes. So I split, split up Egger into two different things. Cause like, even if this does go 15 minutes, like you look at Egger's totals and it's just like, she doesn't like in 15 minutes, she'll throw like 20 significant strikes. Now, a lot of those fights take place on the ground and that's kind of how I see this fight playing out. So. I'm going to pick Edgar to win. I wouldn't bet her at chalk. She was like minus 305, so some people have moved in on Eileen Perez. But I think it's a bad matchup for Perez, who wants to be a domineering wrestler, and I think she's going to be exploited on the ground. So Edgar, Edgar by sub, but yeah, the odds on Edgar by sub just don't get the juices flowing for me right now. Like Edgar by sub, uh, it's it's it was plus. Oh, no, that's uh, by KO. Edgar by sub, yeah. I mean, they have it lined at like plus 225. Just doesn't get the juices flowing for me. So it's probably going to be a straight up pass for me. I'm going to pick Edgar. I think Edgar wins by sub, but yeah, not, 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 you know me. I never touch Lady Chalk. Never, never, ever. Not even if there's a fire. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fair. Paul, uh, old Patrice would just tell you that uh, you could just bet the underdogs, spam bet the underdogs, and you'll come away profitable at the Not end of here. it. But this is one of those ones you'd spam bet it. You wouldn't feel good about it. I don't really care much for Eileen Perez uh, coming in, obviously, because of short notice. But it's just another one of these Brazilian fighters. They don't fight nothing. 0-2, 0-1. She's Argentinian. 0-1, 5-5. Yeah, sorry, Argentinian. And mostly spend her time in the South American regional scene where even – you know, just like 0-1, oh, 0-2, 0-1. At what point do you – I'm okay with record padding. You're trying to learn stuff. You're trying to figure out new moves. You're trying to figure things out. It's just there has to be some type of, like, filter area between jumping from the regional scenes to the UFC. Now, Contenders is attempting to be that, but you see all type of people that they get into Contender Series off a inflated record, and then they happen to knock somebody out on the Contender Series, and now they're in the UFC, and – it's just not going to be there for longevity. So when I look at her, it's like Perez's striking is just not very good. Her grappling, uh, not terrible in comparison to the level that she's been fighting, but is her wrestling is not very good. She pushes everything into the clinch. She's most comfortable in the clinch. Even when she's striking, it's like it's all about striking long enough to initiate the clinch. And against Stephanie Egger, I just don't think it's going to go well for her. Egger is mm-hmm. bigger, stronger, better Gino. in the clinch. Judo black belt, going to toss her. And Egger, ironically enough, all of her fights, are live and die by the clinch. Her debut against Tracy Cortez, Cortez much better wrestler, right? So she was able to neutralize the clinch. She was able to take her down and have her way. Chase Cortez wins the fight. Shana Young, Shana Young, big, strong, physical, wants to clinch. Edgar just tosses her, batters her with elbows, stops her. Jesse Jess Rose Clark, wouldn't you know it, initiates all of the clinches. Fight hits the ground, she arm bars her. And then against Mary Buono Silva, this one was funny to me because Egger is known as the armbar queen now. Like, oh, damn. She's got two wins in her career by armbar. Bueno Silva, five wins by armbar, three of which came inside the UFC, including one over Jillian Robertson. Like, she's just got a much better armbar. She's a much better grappler. So, of course, that fight hits the ground. Egger, maybe she taps, maybe she didn't tap. All of these fights are playing out the exact same. They end up in the clinch. They end up on the ground. If she's better than you, she's going to take over. If you're a, a, a clean, proficient grappler, you'll find your way. Against Tracy Cortez, She's a top 10 girl in the division against Maria Buena Silva. uh, You know, believe it or not, probably top 15 girl in the division. Really not half bad. 
those are you know those are those are the tests that you need in order to improve Aylin Perez has never fought anything remote that level, right? So she's going to get stuck in the clinch. She's going to get tossed. She's going to get submitted is what I would believe. The thing is, mine is 300. Mine is 350. And even ah, the, yeah, man. even the Edgar no, submission can't. prop is like, it's not, it's not exciting. Like plus 225. No. It's like, that doesn't, that doesn't get you excited. You know, that's, I will admit though, the prize picks 35, 35% uh, win by submission probability. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, listen, Seems about I, right. I think I think that's what prize picks brings to the table as well. Is like sometimes you can't quite figure out how you want to approach it. You're not sure about the prop, you're not sure about the total, you're not sure about the fighter. Yeah. Maybe you think Egger, but the price is up. And yeah, in this case, 35 and a half. Egger's not gonna throw a whole lot of volume standing. She's no. gonna look to get to the fight to the ground. If she arm bars her quick, you're not hitting no 35 and a half. If she doesn't arm bar her quick, you're probably still not hitting. 35 and a half and and again we didn't mention this earlier but i want to mention it surreal gagne prize picks got him at 50 and a half right man you want the over on that ty can take one hell of a punch gone is one of these guys that just touches and goes jab leg kick jab leg kick he will overwhelm him down the stretch but he's going to be have to hit ty 70 80 times and again when you look at historically speaking with a guy like surreal gone it's volume it's vol. he's fought a bunch of these power punches before right it took him uh, 135 land against Volkov, went the distance. You know, he landed 98 against Derek Lewis, who's not exactly known for his durability. He landed 102 against Yerazino Rosenstruck. Like, he hits over 50 on the date. When he knocked out Junior DeSantos, he knocked him out uh, two and a half minutes into the round two. The fight lasted seven minutes and 34 seconds. He landed 59, landed 65 against Bozer, 94 against Dante Mays. All he does is land more than 50 significant strikes. True. And they set it at 50 and a half. Come on, man. Come on. So, again, great thing about prize picks. You don't have to go for the six to one money line. You don't have to try to chase the over two and a half rounds at, you know, minus 120, minus 130. Uh, you can just take that that over on Cyril Gone shots landed. You're in the same position, punches chance, tie land something. But, like, I'd feel good about that. And on a fight like Edgar, there's not real any great way to approach it, but I would think my most confident lean would be on the prize pick total, which is the under 35 and a half significant strikes landing mm -hmm. for her. The most she ever got to was against Shayna Young. She obviously got a second round finish, but she got to 29. And, then and the, dude, the it other, was like the other... a heavy bag. She was just drubbing on Shayna Young, right? Like most people exactly. are going to defend a little bit. Like it's not going to The other fights, 10 against Tracy Cortez in a three round decision loss. Um, and then, you know, she had two first round finishes, but like... The, the striking totals for her have not historically been there. So 35 and a half sounds really low, but in a women's fight that has a decent probability to finish inside the distance, like unless, you know, both of their wrestling is negated and it just turns into a three round, which is possible. Um, yeah, I just think it's uh, that type of situation. They hardly score clinch strikes, right? So really if it's don't. largely a clinch battle, they're not going to factor in like, oh, look at those knees to the thigh. It's like they want to see at range or big heavy ground and pound. This might not have any at range striking and very little ground and pound. So that's what would make you, again, it's just a different way to attack a fight that you might not have otherwise any interest in. And if you have enough responsibility to just pass altogether, just pass altogether. But of course, some people, they know they're watching all the, the whole card. They're watching every single fight. They want some type of action in some form of another. Uh, again, prize picks just kind of gives you that different layer of being able to approach a certain fight or situation. Patrice, what you got for us? So uh, I was 
building up a card as we were going through, but I kind of like what Cody just did, so I played that. I just did over, gone, and under Egger. Yeah. Three to one. Yeah. Easy stuff. So here's what I'm adding to it for, like, the super five-leg one that can pay, it's a, pay us out ten to one or two to one mm-hmm. if we go four or five on prizepicks.com. Code DOP to get that deposit match. Get in on the games. I like what you guys are kind of selling this week. So I have uh, Nazrat under. 85 and a half. Love that one. Uh, fantasy points. I'm going to go with, I'm just going to play another 4 1 because I'm not really sure what to do with Dan Walsh and Denis, whether I want to go over yeah, two, two takedowns. Two takedowns is big, and he's taking on a guy with like a dangerous ground game. Yeah, so it's you know like, what? I, 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 don't, I don't like what you guys are saying about this. Cody is saying over. You're saying, I don't think so. So you know what? I, I'm scratching that one off. I'm That's not fair. throwing that one. Uh, the other one that I'm doing is a different route with Fig Jam or whatever the hell that guy's name Figlack. is. Fig Lack. Big over 86 and a half fantasy points with the way that you described what he's going to do yeah. and how he's going to score points. 86 and a half sounds pretty good. So let's throw that into the machine and see. I'll play this one as a $75 entry. So 75 bucks pays 750. So that sounds pretty good to me. I do have, uh, where is it? Jaden, if, if you're playing on prize picks, you have some extra cash. College footballs this weekend. Jaden Bray over 12 fantasy points. Oklahoma State wide receiver. Parker Washington on Penn State more than 16 fantasy points. Uh, that pays three to one. If you want to add on to that, you can go Brennan Presley. Uh, play the correlated plays. So Elvis Presley? Elvis Presley. So if you go Bray over or more than 12 points, Presley less than 14 and a half. And if you go Parker Washington on Penn State, more than 16. You want to go Mitchell Tinsley, less than 18 and a half. Coming off of injury on a new squad, uh, it's very unlikely that he's super involved week one. I feel like Pat was just speaking French to me for that college football, but he's got the goods. I'm going to have to, re- I'm going to, have to you know, rewind and, and see where his head was at to uh, add more fuel to the fire on prize picks. But I just tailed the, uh, the four-banger for... Uh, for $75 as well to win 750 because my head's in the same spot on all that. And I had the Figlack over two takedowns, but I think that fantasy one is like he throws combinations when he enters the pocket. He could get to like three, four takedowns, but it's like if he, he gets him, a first-round finish or he, you get it anyway. Exactly. So and if I, he gets the four, you're getting it. I love it. I love it. Place Again, that yeah, entry. It, that's probably the better because the one I like for Figlack, Tomeo brought up in the fantasy score was the over 53 and a half significant strikes landed because no one's actually landed over 47, I think, on Zion before. I think that's why they set it low. It's like, oh, this guy doesn't usually get mm-hmm. hit. It's like the guys he's fighting are just like clinging on to him for no reason. These low striking affairs like Figlack scores that many significant strikes landed uh, landed per, like a round. The only issue, but yeah, with... you would need Zion to go two and a half, three rounds. Whereas the fantasy score, if he wrecks him with takedowns, ground and yeah. pound, knocks him out, you're good either way. Yeah, like, the significance you're, you're covered. The significant strikes. What worries me about that, there, Cody, is that Finish. if he gets a lot of t- no, if he gets a lot of takedowns, like they don't really score significant strikes for like ground strikes a lot of the times. That's true. My only thing would be like, you know, uh, Don Match. Geez, the guys, was wasn't a grappler, right? Like he wasn't trying to ground and pound him. And Jamie Malarkey, like Jamie Malarkey, just didn't want to let him up, so he's just looking to hold him down the whole time. Benjamini landed seventeen significant strikes through two rounds, but then landed seventeen alone in the third, right? And then Terrence McKinney just absolutely wrecked him. Then the kid gets cut. Then he gets brought in real fast. And I think, I think is you know, Figlack's just going to go out there and try to put a statement out. But 
again, if, if he was to finish, then it's like, oh, man, he only hit him 50 times. He only hit him 40 times. He took him down. He took his back. The rear naked choked him. He didn't even have to hit him. It's like, ah, oh, all, all that doesn't bode well for it. Whereas on the fantasy side of things, it's like, yeah, he could. there's a multitude of ways to hit over on that number. He could keep it standing and just batter him the whole time. He could take him down 10 times and just smash him. He could smit him. He could knock him out. He could put a dominating performance on. Like, there's multiple ways to get to that figure, and that's what makes it a little more, uh, a little safer, I guess I would say. Yeah. All right. So the bets that I have in right now, I've got McDessie at plus two hundred, and I've got Figlock round three at eighteen to uh, plus eighteen hundred. Other things I have my eye as we head into the week and are uh, gone in those late props around so uh, four and round five probably see myself getting to that i just don't really have faith that tai Ivasa has a five round uh game in him um and yeah gone as the fight goes on should completely uh take over um and i'm waiting for the money to keep coming in on nathaniel wood and i'm gonna end up with charles jordan i'm pretty sure on my card and khalid taha interesting but really right now all i've got is mcdessey uh plus 200 and figlock round three plus 1800 um but yeah at paul shag on twitter i will let you know on either Friday night or Saturday morning, um, what my plays are. Him with the PRP, Cody. Him with the PRP. We're going to go with Cyril Gunn, Robert Whitaker, <laughs> Lisa DiCirico. Uh I'll take Nazareth Hackperos for the time being. Journal Aarons will be officially our dog number one. I'm going to lean towards Nathan. Ah, man. See, I got a lot of work to do on this card still. Like, nothing just feels good. Okay, yeah, let me yeah. just rip it through so I don't question myself. We're going still gone. Robert Whitaker, Lisa DiCirico, Nazareth Hackbrows, Jarno Aarons, dog number one. I'll take Jordan for the time being. Dustin Stolfus is going to be our dog number two. Mikhail Figlak, Nasruddin Imovov, uh, Benoit Saint-Denis, Christian Quinones is our dog number three, and Stephanie Egger. But, uh, yeah, yeah. listen, it's it's Wednesday right now. Keep studying on Thursday. Friday, we're going to see Wayans. They're going to be early on Friday and then tweet something out by Friday night and attack this thing on Saturday. I feel okay with the main card. It's that the undercard is looking a little iffy. There's definitely going to be dogs popping through on this card, so it's all about keeping the safe picks as as our lock, right? So I don't know. I'll, I'll tweet something out more confident as the days come, but this is not one of these cards you can just check out one time and then roll over. You need to check out the way and see what shape they're in. You need to try check out any pertinent information, as much tape study as you can get, get the best lean as you can on it. And then I wouldn't overexpose myself on the show too much, but I've been getting burnt up on these UFC. So time to make a triumphant comeback. Start Saturday morning. Let's do it, Paul. Let's pitter patter. Let's get our bright and early from Paris, France. That is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed this show. For producer Pat and Cody Saptic, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Oh.